G'day mate, 40 here. We are going out live across Rumble. We're going out live across YouTube. We're going out live across Odyssey. We're going out live across the entire world. We are live on Facebook, on my Facebook page, on my Facebook profile, on Twitter, right? The whole world is here, ready to carry out a conversation about uh, a classic work from 2006, 2007. Remember the game? Book by Neil Strauss, The Game. Undercover in the Secret Society of Pickup Artists. So there is a new podcast. Yes, new podcast. And it is called If Books Could Kill. And so this podcast hosted by a couple of you guessed it, surprise lefties, all right? They are going after the airport bestsellers that captured our hearts and ruined our minds. Here we go. So it's hosted by Michael Hobbs, who writes a lot on gay issues, and Peter Shamshiri, who I think is straight, who may be married and is an attorney. And they're both on the left. Know that you you must have heard of the game. Yes, this is the book that taught me how to nick. Now that's, uh, I think, Michael Hobbs there speaking, the guy who writes a lot on gay issues. All right, cool music. You know, one of the books I'm reading for this podcast is The End of History, a book about the ascendance of liberal democracy after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, but first, I thought it was critical to this. So I think that's Michael Shamshiri speaking. And it sounds like he's the guy who actually does the homework. So this is a very popular podcast format. You have one guy who does the work, one guy who reads the books, and then the other guy just reacts. So I think this Shamshiri dude, he does the works, and Michael Hobbs, the gay guy, just uh, weighs in with reactions. Discuss The Game by Neil Strauss, a book about how to get the most pussy about, about dudes getting their dicks wet in la in the 1990s <laughs> <laughs> that's really reductive okay so it's really easy to sneer right if you're just you know if you're in a settled relationship if you're high status all right where you don't have to you don't have to worry about these concerns that uh, affect you know just regular blokes right just notice the sneering uh, off the top so guess what? A lot of guys are socially awkward. A lot of guys have trouble meeting women. A lot of guys have a long history with being humiliated by women, by never feeling like they are desired by women, by not knowing how to talk to women, how to open up with women. And so reading a book like The Game, if used in a healthy way, can improve your social skills and give you more ways to break through and start making a connection with women start dating women, start relating to women, and possibly settle down and start mating with, with women. On the other hand, if you overdo the pickup game, it can be toxic. It can be a way to distract or hide from your, your deeper issues for human connection. But a whole ton of guys are incredibly awkward around women. A whole ton of guys are incredibly lost around women. A whole ton of guys just yearn for a connection with a woman, but they don't know how. And so the information in books like The Game, inside 
the undercover and the secret society of pickup artists, you can learn a lot of you know basic psychology. You can learn some street level psychology. You can learn some tips and tricks to break the ice with women. A lot of blokes are just scared to death with women. So you can use this information in a toxic way. You can use this information in a healthy way, just like with Christianity. Some people convert to Christianity. They become nicer and finer. Other people convert to Christianity and they become meaner and more hideous and more antisocial. Some people become Orthodox Jews and they become nicer, finer, kinder, more honest. Other people become Orthodox Jews and they become more obnoxious, more difficult, more unethical. Right? So it's not like the game, right? It's not like pickup artistry is, is the one type of information that can only be used for evil. Right? All sorts of information can be used for good and it can be used for evil. Right. These guys, you know, one gay guy, he doesn't need to learn to speak to women. So there's kind of this sneering, superior quality to their critique of the game. But think about the lonely guy who has never had a girlfriend. Right? I, I would say 10% of my audience has never had a girlfriend. Right? They need help. And, and books like The Game can help some people. Now, I have a hero system. I have a morality system. It comes from Orthodox Judaism. So obviously, I don't think a life of sexual promiscuity is a good idea. Right? I had such a life in retrospect. I don't think it was such a good idea. I had to end up you know, 12-stepping for love addiction, for sex addiction, for, for porn addiction, and the like. But for people who are lost when it comes to women and need to find a way to start to connect, you know, people men who have only known failure and humiliation at the hands of women. All right. Uh, here is a book that might be very useful for you. Right now, these two blokes hosting the podcast, apparently they are above and beyond such information. One bloke is gay. So obviously picking up women is not a concern for him. And the other guy is married. So they come from this very smug, superior place. But a book like The Game meets very vital needs. Some for some blokes, all right, their only erotic intimacy with women is being pornography. So a man who has no chance to land with a woman in real life, right? I'm going to condemn him for looking at pornography. A man who has never been able to kiss a woman in real life, a man who's never had a girlfriend in real life, a man who's never had sex in real life, and he's now 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, I'm going to I'm going to condemn him. I'm going to stare at him for looking at pornography or for consulting a, a pickup book. No. no I, I've been blessed with a certain gift of the gab and some other advantages. And so I've had you know, my, my share of uh, social times with women. But not everyone's born with my advantages. Not everyone is born with the advantages of these blokes here hosting If Books Could Kill. Interesting podcast from a, from a left-wing perspective. Here they are on the game. <laughs> the subtitle of the game is Penetrating the Secret Society of Pickup Artists. How did I not notice the penetrating thing? Before? Yeah, that's that's search engine optimization, baby. You know? <laughs> penetrating the secret society. So the basic gist is that it's this story about how the author joins a group of so-called pickup artists, guys who study the art and science of picking up women. Yes. The aesthetic of the book, quite interesting. The OG print edition... Yes, Glenn Bentley makes a great point. Some people watch Luke Ford live streams and become better 
Most people who watch Lukeborn live streams are unchanged, and other people use the information that they attain on Lukeborn live streams, and it makes their lives worse. They, they quit their six-figure jobs, or they get fired from it, and they you know, devote themselves to the JQ. All right? So they, they turn into E. Michael Jones. So information is, is rarely neutral, right? Information can take you in many different directions. I just don't agree with the sneering at, at the book, The Game. Its purpose is not just for, for people to get, you know, laid over and over and over again, right? For, for many blokes, this book is a way to get, you know, something of a window into women, a, an idea about how to talk to women, about how to you know, break out of a life of isolation, become more socially adept, develop some more social skills. So people don't just buy a Ferrari to have sex with women, right? Some people enjoy having a Ferrari. Other people enjoy upgrading their social skills, right? Many people read the, the game, learn about pickup artistry, and they don't have sex with more women. They just enjoy learning more about how men and women operate, and uh, they maybe learn a few tips and tricks for their social skills. All right, this podcast is called If Books Could Kill. Is leather bound. <laughs> I forgot about this. And it's got one of those like built-in ribbon bookmarks, uh, like a bright ribbon. Well, guess what? For some people, in some circumstances, the game is their Bible, right? Not everyone venerates the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament or the Bible of, of Western civilization, right? Other people have a different hero system, and the thing that they most need in the world is a way to approach women. And so I don't despise those people. I don't look down at them. I'm not making noises to indicate my contempt for them, but they treat this book like a Bible. This book could absolutely play a, a valuable role akin to a Bible in the lives of some men who may not have been born with the advantages that other men have in meeting women. Read one like the Bible. Oh God, There are many quotations throughout the book from, from famous authors and thinkers. Can you guess, Michael, who the first quote comes from? And Glenn Medley says, women sneer at this stuff because they want a man's confidence and charisma to be organic. Women also sneer at this stuff because it works. Women sneer at this stuff because it reduces the advantage that women have over men with regard to social skills and reading situations. Right? All sorts of people sneer at this stuff, but why is there such an enormous market for pickup artist techniques? Because it works. Right? Unlike academic stuff, this replicates. Right? Unlike some ivory tower theory, this works in the real world. Now, it could work to take you to a dark place. It could work to take you to a good place. All right, what you do with this information is up to you and the circumstances that you put yourself in. Right? You're not fated to go to a dark place if you learn about the game. And Healthy Kuma says, I actually do have it by my bedside. <laughs> no, no joke. Um, oh, it's going to be someone horrible like Tony Robbins or something. No, no. You're going in the wrong direction, my friend. The first quote is from Betty Friedan. What? <laughs> <laughs> the Betty Friedan quote is, Men weren't really the enemy. They were fellow victims, suffering from an outmoded masculine mystique that made them feel unnecessarily inadequate when there were no bears to kill. That's actually, a, yes, that's a good quote. I'm telling you, there are some great feminist quotes all throughout. Yeah, they're just so smug, so superior. 
right, just so confident that their particular partisan left-wing hero system is just objectively true, nonpartisan, just pragmatic, that they're just above the concerns of, of mere mortals. The, the, just the, the sneering tone. There is so much honesty in this book by Neil Strauss. It is so raw. It is so much braver than these smug, superior dudes who are discussing it in a contemptuous fashion on this podcast. And then Neil Strauss wrote, wrote a sequel to it, confessing about having to go to rehab for, for sex addiction. So you're not going to hear these blokes on the podcast talking about the horrible things that they did to get laid or how they you know, manipulated people and used people and abused people and cheated and stole and had embarrassing situations, right? The honesty that Neil Strauss and many of the men bring to this book, right? The hosts of this sneering, contemptuous, superior podcast, they display none of that vulnerability. None. Out this story of banging as many chicks as possible in L.A. <laughs> so have you read this book? Have you read the game? So I actually read the so These are the Decoding the Gurus guys. This is a different crew. This is Michael Hobbs, uh, left-wing writer, frequently on gay issues. So he's the, the gay guy in this podcast who hasn't really paid much attention to the book. And then Peter Shamshiri, presumably a straight guy married to a woman and isn't an attorney. Yes, I think shortly after it came out or a couple years after it came out, when I was in kind of a pickup artist curious phase, mm. I've always been slightly fascinated by this because, first of all, I always struggled to get laid. Yeah. And second of all, this whole thing always seemed very like straight dude to me. Like this was always wrapped up in this weird. Yeah, it is straight dude. All right. Most men are straight. Most men are interested in women. They're not interested in having sex with, with men. So Healthy Kuma says, this book is an attack on women's ability to read men. The idea that they can, men can be, that women can be so easily manipulated. Right. So this book can help even play the playing field for men who want to date and meet and connect and relate and possibly mate with women. The, the, the dating norms of straight people, which I genuinely find fascinating and totally baffling, where for gay men, it's like 90% attractiveness. Uh -huh. So there's not a lot of like game to be done in like my world. Yeah, not a lot of game to be done. Yeah, in the gay world, like getting laid when you're gay is uh, not nearly as difficult as when you're straight. Right. So typical gay man has far, 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 far more sex partners than typical straight men. So maybe still we have a lot to learn from the gay way of loving, right? I don't know. Maybe gays have lower STD rates than, than straights. I, I think, yeah, I'm not sure that's true. Maybe maybe gays have uh, better records of monogamy than, than straights. You know, maybe they have lower incidences of uh, suicide and mental illness. Maybe they have yeah, lower rates of venereal disease. Maybe it's just a healthier lifestyle. I'm skeptical, but I'm pragmatic. Whatever the evidence says, if the evidence says the straights tend to have lower rates of STDs than gays, the evidence says that straights are less likely to have severe mental illness than gays. If the evidence shows that straights are more likely to be monogamous and selective in their sexual partners than gays, the evidence shows that uh, straights are less likely to get arrested for having sex in public 
for having sex with random strangers and passing on monkeypox, right? If, if that's what the evidence shows, then I will simply side with the evidence. But uh, hey, maybe maybe the gays can, can teach us a better way to live and to love. Whereas in straight world, it seems like there's this dance of confidence and kind of the vibe that you give off. And I was uh -huh. always kind of fascinated just because it seems like it's harder to date as a straight guy than a gay guy somehow. Yeah, I think that's right. Um... Yeah, you have to put a lot more effort in, right? It's, it's a lot harder like dating the, the opposite sex than... Uh, just you know dating someone of of the uh, the same sex it's quite a bit harder unfortunately women they've got all kinds of standards you know, know. uh and uh <laughs> the first problem it's a big downer for dudes which actually my my memories of the book okay so when you're saying that women have all kinds of standards aren't you saying that uh Perhaps some other groups don't have that many standards. That's uh, just what I'm hearing. I think he's confessing that uh, straights have to have higher standards. It's far more difficult to date, relate, and mate with someone of the opposite sex than the same sex. It's been a very long time since I've read it. Is that he seems to toggle back and forth between a kind of anthropological dissection of this world, like look at look at the men and how they are broken and how they are dealing with their brokenness, and then like one paragraph later he'll switch to basically advice. Yeah. How yes, that is how the book's broken up, and so that's why there's so much more honesty and vulnerability and confession in the book than any smug superior to dudes analyzing the book. To be one of these pickup artists, and it seems like the author himself couldn't really decide or, or was trying to have it both ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, he, it's very clear that he goes into this. Okay, this is a massive seller, but I had no problem reading every word of it. Not only did I have no problem reading every word of it, I probably read some sections of it multiple times. I then signed on for, you know, unused portions. Uh, signed up with Neil Strauss's mailing list to get access to like uh, 60 pages or 80 pages that didn't make the final cut of the book. It's a very easy, very fun book to read because it's not smug and contemptuous and superior to its audience, unlike the hosts of this podcast. Dorky guy that struggles to get laid and he finds out how to get laid, right? He finds, he finds these techniques that help him get laid and they work. And part of him is smart enough to know that this is weird and manipulative yeah. <laughs> and, and demeans women. On the yeah. other hand, he is very impressed with himself and very happy right. about these developments. Right. And he right. constantly, it's the struggle of two Neils all throughout the book. Did you ever have a pickup artist phase? No, um, I have never had any, any sort of phase like this. Um, I definitely had a phase where I was dorkier and not doing well with women. I've never enjoyed, even when I was better at it, like going out to bars and like talking to random women and trying to hook up with them. I, I don't have like a ton of interest in being like, oh, could I sleep with that random stranger? Right. But now I, I was I was never intrigued by this. You know, I certainly when I was like, you know, in college and had a couple of years where I wasn't super successful with the ladies. Um, I think that it was probably like loosely intriguing to me, but never enough mm -hmm. to be like, I'll read the book. You know, so this was your first time diving into this. This was. Yeah, um, I hadn't even you know, there's a whole bunch of pop culture that descends from this and i hadn't oh really God, absorbed yeah. any of it until yeah. i uh until i did for this podcast and uh 
changed my brain forever. It's too, it's too bad. Um, I'm now, I'm now locked down for the rest of my life. Cause I, if you I had know. put me in LA in 2004, I, I laid you. So in 2015, Neil Strauss came out with a follow-up sequel, the truth, an uncomfortable book about relationships where he talks about the self-defeating nature of being a pickup artist, how he ended up in uh, sex and love addiction, uh, rehab, just another incredibly raw, vulnerable, uh, very compelling book, The Truth, an uncomfortable book about relationships. I strongly recommend it. Using the tactics I, I learned <laughs> from Neil Strauss. Now you're tooled up. Now you're equipped. <laughs> yeah. To trick some like out-of-work actress into having sex with you. And then both of you waking up feeling bad about it the next day. That seems like... Yeah, and he's just so smug and superior. Okay, so how often has he tricked people into a sexual relationship? And how often have other people tricked him? How often does he feel bad after having sex with some rando? Right? You don't get the, the truth, the vulnerability, the honesty of Neil Strauss's book from these two smug, superior podcast hosts. Sex is complicated, right? Vulnerability is difficult and challenging. Human connection is, is challenging and demanding. And if you connect with people, there's always a chance that you'll regret it afterwards, right? So it's not like sex is the only kind of interaction where people might regret it afterwards. So I'm sure some of the people use these techniques and then regretted the sex afterwards. I'm sure many people use these techniques and help them to achieve uh, dating, mating, relationships, you know, all sorts of good things. It's not inherent in these techniques. It's not inherent in the methods discussed in this book that will have this, these horrible outcomes. Yeah, you could just stay in your room and play video games and uh, just take a complete skip on the messy world of human connection. The, uh, the, the experience that he's trying to replicate in this book. So let's, let's uh, uh, kind of set the table here. Neil's a journalist, right? And he, as part of his job, first dives into this online community of pickup artists. And we're in the early 2000s here. They use all sorts of like cult-like lingo. Um, Sarging is going out and picking up women. Oh my God. Uh, groups of girls are called sets. Okay, any in-group employs cult-like lingo. Right? In Orthodox Judaism, we employ cult-like lingo. In Seventh-day Adventism, we employ cult-like lingo. Any in-group employs cult-like lingo. Why? Because any in-group has many characteristics of a cult. You can't join an in-group. Some closely identifying in-group without participating in many of the characteristics of the cult. But uh, these two guys, they're so smug and superior, they use cult just as a pejorative. They'd never be vulnerable to something like this. Like every enthusiastic, passionate phase of life has its own lingo. It's not uh, unique to pick up artistry. Healthy Kuma says, Luke, I get the feeling that you don't like these guys. <laughs> yeah. The irony of some gay guy judging classifications made by, you know, heterosexual pickup artists. But he has no sense of irony. They have no sense of humility. They're just so above us mere mortals. So, like, if there's three girls, that's a three set. Oh, my gosh. Uh, IOIs are indicators of interest. So it's never like, she seemed like she liked me. It's always right. getting some IOIs from this girl. Right. Indicators of interest is an incredibly valuable social skill. Right. If you look for IOIs, you'll not be humiliated when you ask a girl out because you'll wait till you get some IOIs. You wait for some IOIs. You'll never be humiliated when you seek to progress with a woman. Right. 
you will not uh, talk too much, you will not annoy women nearly as much if you simply pay attention to IOIs. Indicators of interest is so important, it's so valuable, it's such a, an important social skill that even the socially unskilled and awkward can, can learn it. So an indicator of interest is if she says something to you that is beyond what is polite, beyond what is demanded by courtesy, if she asks you unnecessary questions, if she touches you unnecessarily, and if she primps, like takes care of herself, runs her hands through her hair, puts on makeup, uh, does anything to try to look better in front of you. These are all indicators of interest. They indicate that you can progress. And if you don't get any indicators of interest, then you don't try to progress because it's pointless. Such a valuable, important social skill that will make your life so much easier, make your interactions with the opposite sex so much more smooth and so much more comfortable for all parties concerned, but they scoff at it. IOIs is a gift. I was blessed to learn about IOIs. Number closing is when you get someone's number. Peacocking. Do you know what peacocking is? Oh, this is from that fucking TV show where it's like you're supposed to wear at least one very flashy item of clothing. Yeah. Like bright purple sunglasses in a bar or something. And isn't it so like people will comment on it as like a conversation starter or something? Right. That's right. So, yeah, you're wearing like intentionally over the top loud things in order to attract attention and uh, pretend that you're interesting or whatever. Oh, my God. So Neil becomes fascinated by this stuff and he decides to meet some of these guys in person. So he signs up for a pickup artist workshop put on by the most prominent guy in the community, Mystery. Mystery. The f- the now famous Mystery. That's right. Made famous by this book. Yeah. Mystery's real name is Eric Horvat Markovich. Uh, for some reason, he has it legally changed to Eric Von Markovich, which I guess he just okay. thought sounded cooler. He's right. He's a prolific writer online about picking up women, well known within the community. His aesthetic is just fully Chris Angel. Right. Pale, dark hair, soul patch, nail polish, big earrings. He embraces like a aggressive form of peacocking. So he'd be wearing large top hats all the time. He's mm-hmm. 6'5 and wears boots with six inch platforms. No way. You throw in the top hats and this guy is like towering in the club well over seven feet tall. He's like the fucking Chrysler building everywhere he goes. <laughs> yeah. He wears vests and large coats and numerous watches on each arm at a time. Also, my memory of this guy from the eventual VH1 show is that he's also quite like conventionally attractive. You know, it's interesting. Neil describes him as like a very mediocre looking dude. I think he's a pretty good looking guy. He's yeah. got like, you know, tall cheekbones. He, he's tall. Yeah. He's in um, decent shape. He, he's a good looking guy. Um, it makes you wonder. <laughs> it makes you wonder why he needed everything else. Yeah. When they first meet, Mystery hands Neil a manila envelope containing pictures of the hottest girls he's ever dated. <laughs> Wait, really? That's a real... And they're just so superior to that, all right? They're, they're just above that, all right? Uh, that is something that ordinary men tend to be quite interested in, right? Uh, as mystery is doing certain things which replicate. When other people employ many of these techniques, they too have more success at opening with women and connecting with women and talking with women and dating with women. This is not like some academic study that doesn't replicate which is probably true of half of social science, right? This is replicable, proved day in, day out to grab attention and to make opening up and connecting with women easier. But they're just so contemptuous. They're just above it all. They just uh, despise all this. Uh, Mystery is slept with hundreds of attractive women, right? 
many blokes would find this kind of interesting and wonder, how did he do it? Now, my hero system is different. My hero system is that sexual promiscuity is not good for people and it's not good for society. But I don't have this you know, above it all contempt for, for people who struggle to connect with women and try to use these techniques to, to break through for what was previously not possible for them. Details in the book. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Imagine having that. Imagine having a manila folder. To be clear, that wasn't like at the workshop. Neil spots mystery like in the hotel lobby and mystery just hands him the envelope. <laughs> oh my fucking God. <laughs> so Neil is like reasonably self-reflective about all of this. Uh, he describes signing up for this workshop as, quote, acknowledging defeat, inferiority. Reasonably, reasonably introspective. He's incredibly open. Neil Strauss is incredibly vulnerable in this book and in much of his other work. Right? These, these two blokes who are commenting on the book, right? they don't display one one hundredth of the vulnerability that uh, Neil Strauss does in this book. And inadequacy. So, mm -hmm. like, you know, he's starting from this place of, like, yeah, like, I'm a big loser who can't get laid. And mm -hmm. I'm... Oh, but you're superior to that. You've never felt that. So this doesn't concern you. Comment from the chat. Let's imagine the counterfactual that all this remained secret. The women had no idea that they were getting gained. These guys should be open. These pickup techniques are out in the open. Going to sign up for a workshop and pay someone $500. And I understand that that is pathetic. Mm -hmm. So I guess I should teach you some strategies, right? Yeah. Teach me. Give me the, give me the wisdom and the knowledge. A lot yeah. of it is like very. Yes. I really want to know what a gay guy thinks about uh, techniques to meet women stupid icebreakers like my friend was invited to be on oh stupid icebreakers right these are icebreakers that have been successfully used by hundreds of men right that you don't happen to have this problem right doesn't make you inherently a superior creature who can have disdain and disgust and contempt for men who successfully use these techniques to overcome disadvantages that they've been given by nature or by their upbringing so that they're not as successful, they're not married like you are, right? So two men who have advantages that most other men do not, right, are just filled with contempt for this book. That helps ordinary blokes start to open up with women and have half a chance with women. On Maury, like, should he go on or is it going to be too embarrassing? Uh, okay. Some of them are things that you do to sort of like build a little artificial bond between you and the gal. So one of them is... That's a good question, right? Talking to a stranger. Hey, I've got a friend who's been invited to go on Maury Povich. When Maury Povich was on the air, should he go on or would it be too embarrassing? Right? If it works, it works. It helps two people connect, right? Just like talking about sports. Right? Human connection is difficult. This is a way that ordinary people who don't have your advantages can start to connect. You're in the middle of a desert in a box. Describe the box to me. <laughs> well, well, let, let me... Describe your box, Michael. Wait, what? I don't even understand this one. Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> but the point is that when someone will describe their box, they'll be like, okay. Uh... So Michael Hobbs is so feminine that, yeah, for the first 10 minutes that I was listening to it, I just assumed he was a woman. It's like big. And they're like, oh, big. That means you have like a large ego. Oh, right. So it's almost like a palm reading thing, but it's yeah, not, yeah. you don't grab it. It's your a little okay. fake psychoanalysis uh, thing. Most of this is just ways to sort of make people confident in what are. So 
if uh, this is just a palm reading thing, what does it say? It says that many women are into astrology and palm reading. So you're meeting people where they're at, talking to people in terms of what they're interested in, but taking other people into consideration. You are moderating and modulating and adjusting what you say and what you do according to what is more effective at possibly connecting with the other person. Oh my God, how awful that uh, this book is teaching you to take other people into account and learn ways of speaking to the opposite sex, which you know, may well be a complete you know, strange experience for you traditionally the most awkward parts of a conversation yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah another part of it is just a recognition that women have a sex drive and like want to hook up but again it's like less socially acceptable for them mm. you know there are these artificial barriers that you need to sort of work through wait can i can i tell a story yeah yeah i was in a bar with a female friend of mine and we were hanging out and i, I left to go to the bathroom and i came back and there was this guy talking to us he had come up to her and said hey me and my friends are trying to name all of the oceans and we got Pacific, Atlantic, Indian. I feel like there's another one. Isn't there another ocean? She's like, oh, Arctic. And then sort of before she knew it, she was like in a conversation with this guy. Yeah. And then the next day I like Googled, like something felt fishy to me about it. And I Googled around and there was literally like an article of like pickup artist strategies. And one of them listed was pretend you don't know the names of all the oceans. I don't think that's in the book, but it sounds exactly like a ton of their openers. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're just sort of engaging someone off the bat in a, a really natural sounding conversation. Right. Another thing they do is a uh, little sleight of hand magic trick. A lot of guys are absolutely terrified of women, like particularly guys whose origins are Northern Europe, right? So the further north you go in Northern Europe, the more likely you are to meet blokes who are terrified of women who for whom one woman is enough. And then the further south you go in the northern hemisphere, the more promiscuous the men get. But uh, a lot of these blokes who are terrified of women are absolutely great blokes. They just need an opening. And if uh, using a corny question like, uh, oh, I know there's another ocean, right? if that helps people connect, like, like who are you to throw rocks at it? It's a perfectly innocent question. It, it's a way for painfully awkward people to make a little bit of progress and perhaps have a chance at happiness in life. Hey, my God, how awful is that? Oh, yeah. So Mystery is like a, a magician as like one of his little gigs. And mm -hmm. Neil like spends a, a, fl a couple of like plane flights learning little sleight of hand things. Oh, my God. So you learn techniques to bring joy to people, right? You learn techniques to bring a little extra happiness to people. You learn techniques to learn to connect with strangers. Right? You learn techniques to help you entertain. You learn techniques to enable you to be the life of the party. Oh my God, that's so awful. Oh my God, straights are just so weird. Why would straights want to bring joy and happiness to people? You know, it's basically what it sounds like. Like, check this. Look, look I can make this beer bottle levitate. Okay. There's something called soul gazing, which is when you're a few minutes into a conversation, you you just uh, have a girl stare into your eyes and you stare into hers. And you sort of, you know, you give it a little intro, like, oh, there's, there's this, like, technique I'm trying. So, like, let's check, let's try it out. <laughs> and the whole point is that, like, there is research showing that if you, like, stare into someone's eyes for long enough, you start to feel more comfortable with that. That sounds fake, but sure. <laughs> there's also the prop bag. I'm going to send you a couple of screenshots. Okay. And the prop bag is literally what it sounds like. Many pickup artists carry around a bag full of props that they use in the court. Oh, my God. This is also shocking. Like, women, women just, uh, women never use any manipulation techniques with men. Like, women never have any props to capture male attention. Like, women never make any effort with their makeup or with their clothes or the things they say or where they go. 
for any of their actions to try to grab male attention. Hey, this is also creepy that men might start doing some of the things that women do so effectively to capture men. Oh my God, now men are doing some of these same techniques to capture women. Oh my God, oh my God, it sounds like this is a book to help men and women mate and relate. Oh, oh my God, this is, this is so awful. So picking up women. Wait, like literal physical props? Like carrot top? You'll see. Not not to that level. Um, all right. I, I just let me know when you got that. <laughs> okay. And feel free to read out your favorites. Sniggering. Contemptuous. Because they don't have this problem. So they have zero empathy for men who do. Chad says I was shocked when Dan Savage was touted as a sex expert for the general population, not specifically for the niche he identifies with exactly. Some guys wear makeup. Is that a line too far? Uh, depends on the situation, the circumstance, the, the culture. And I think it's in here. Asking trivia help doesn't work as much in the smartphone era. Great point by Glib Medley. Uh, Healthy Kuma says a woman's entire body is a prop trick. <laughs> Whoa, I sound like Claire Core, according to the chat. You've sent me a page. You sent me three pages of this fucking book. The prop bag is very full. So one of them is a pack of gum, Wrigley's Big Red, mm-hmm. a pack of condoms. Mm-hmm. It's starting off somewhat normal. A piece of dryer lint for the lint opener. Walk up to a woman, stop, wordlessly remove I remember I had this flirtatious relationship with this woman. I just wasn't sure whether I wanted to ask her out or not. And so she was banning the door at this church singles event at a temple and i reach into my pocket to i think come up with the ten dollars for the entrance and as i reach into my pocket like a condom drops out and falls on the desk in front of us and she picks it up and says oh no you know we can't use this as payment uh hidden in the palm of your hand from her clothing ask how long has that been there then hand her the piece of lint (laughs) (laughs) that would work on me i would feel small yeah so these guys have never been socially awkward these guys have never struggled for the right thing to say or do these guys have never wondered how to connect with someone these guys have never felt insecure these guys have never felt lost and lonely in a big world these guys have never struggled with low self-esteem. These guys have never struggled with feeling, you know, unworthy to connect with anyone. These guys have never been in a room and felt like nobody cares about them. Nobody's interested in them. Right? These are things that many people feel. And these silly, ridiculous little tricks can help people who often have the odds stacked against them in life you know, attain a little bit of joy and the possibilities of deeper happiness mall if somebody did that <laughs> i'm i'm in this works uh okay one digital camera it's it's 2005 at the end of the day take yeah. a photo of yourself and a girl smiling then another one striking a serious pose and finally one kissing in the final photo say we make a good couple don't we if she agrees you're in oh that's a high risk that's a high risk strategy master of psychology if you take a picture of you kissing her and she's like <laughs> yeah that was that was fun we make a good couple then she likes you <laughs> uh what else one set of wooden runes in cloth bag for rune readings. Okay, I'm not going to ask you what that is. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I can explain it, but for some reason, just like I said, there's a lot of magic going on. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of astrology for boys. Wait, holy... So they have these techniques because they work. They've been shown to work hundreds upon hundreds of times. So if people have 
props for rune readings in their bag. It's because it works, right? This isn't some unreplicable social science study from the academy, right? This is real world stuff that works with some people. Many women are interested in astrology. Many women are interested in rune readings. Many women are interested in palm readings, right? Uh, many women are not particularly interested in academic philosophy. But this is a social skills technique about meeting people where they're at and talking to people about what they're interested in, helping other people to feel comfortable. Because until a woman feels comfortable and safe, nothing good's going to happen. Shit. Okay, now I'm at the end of the list. One small black light for pointing out lint and dandruff on girls' clothing. A neg. Yeah, that's only <laughs> if you forget your lint. You should blast her with a black light. This is something you... And it probably works hundreds of times. And these aren't Orthodox Jewish women, right, who are getting seduced by this. These aren't uh, traditional Mormon women or traditional Christian women. Right? These are usually secular women, somewhat adrift in the world, also awkwardly looking for connection. Right? When I went through my promiscuity phase, I wasn't seducing virgins, right? I was, you know, hooking up with equally damaged women to myself. Chat says, fright that the implications of unleashing female sexuality would seem quite rational. Flight, we should be frightened at the implications of unleashing sexuality, period. Instead, strive to maintain sexuality within the marital bottle. Relative prudence and sobriety of the female of the species is an essential component for stability. Also, encouraging the prudence and sobriety of the male of the species is also an excellent idea. Look, you have to keep taking jabs at unreplicable studies in psychology and the social sciences. Yes, I, I do. Yes, I must. Do to someone you fucking hate. <laughs> this is like someone, someone in college who you just absolutely loathe and you want to humiliate them as much as possible. Like, I'm going to bring a fucking blacklight because, like, Emma's going to be there. And I, I also feel like any part of you that might be successfully negged would be outweighed by the part of you that's like, why do you have a black light, right? <laughs> is, aren't you going to ask that question? And then the guy's... And the chat says, is uh, hookup culture fundamentally gay? Well, I think the, the male of the species wants to hook up, and it's just usually easier for gay men to hook up rather than straight men. But there was you know, a relatively rare opening in human history from the 1960s until recently where... There are many more opportunities than ever before in the history of Western civilization for blokes to just hook up. Poor tricks don't work for the most part. Yeah, but they work for some people some of the time. And they can ease over, reduce you know, awkward situations, help people to start to connect. Forty, have you ever blacklighted a hotel bed? I've never blacklighted anything. Now... There is an Orthodox synagogue I know that got all their seats from a porn theater. I'm sure they cleaned them, but uh, that that Orthodox synagogue has only had the bad times. Like they never grow because like the the spiritual filth that's been deposited uh, on those seats, I'm not sure can ever be cleaned up. Uh, Ricardo says, "I remember reading the game. I bought it at an all port." bookstore yeah well this this podcast series is for you it's all about uh reading books that you buy at an airport now i find it absolutely compelling book you know, i just read right through it 
very entertaining, very honest, very vulnerable. I could identify with many of the predicaments of the blokes in there. Now, yeah, that's information that you can take too far that can ruin your life. Yeah, Ricardo says it was it was a great book. Like, uh, <laughs> what's your line? Where's the explanation for why you have a bag full of shit, including runes and a blacklight? <laughs> and like a 20-sided die. <laughs> yeah. Some of these strategies are just gratuitous. Like, there's one bit where a guy explains that when he has a girl back at his place, he'll ask for a massage and then tell her that she's doing it wrong. And then oh, tell her that he'll give her a massage to show her the right way. And then he sort of like transitions that into sex. And it's like, bro. Well, I don't know about you, but I've had women back to my place. And we both went back to my place fully with the expectation of having sex. And I lost my nerve. Right? And if I used a technique like that, you know, maybe I would have been more effective. But a lot of guys get a woman back to their place and they lose their nerve. They're awkward. They don't know how to transition things. So. My moral perspective is that sexual promiscuity is bad for individuals and society. Same time, I recognize that many men are just incredibly awkward. And even when everything has been made easy for them, they still find ways to fumble getting a connection with a woman. And sometimes, you know, these connections can move on from dating to mating and a greater commitment than just fun. Oh, she's at your place giving yeah, you yeah, a massage. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need tactics anymore, right? Like this guy is experiencing one of like life's great pleasures, you know, getting a massage yeah. from someone who's attracted to you. So I remember when I was writing my book on uh, Hollywood movie producers and I went to, I think, uh, Edgar Sherrick's last movie. He was, he started Wide Water Sports for ABC TV. He produced about uh, 70 TV movies, about 15 theatrical movies. And at the screening of his last movie about Lyndon Baines Johnson and the Vietnam War, I met this young actress and we hit it off and we were talking and, you know, she shared some, <laughs> she shared some anecdotes about me, about, you know, how challenging and painful it was for her to, you know, having sex with you know, really big dick men. And uh, we made arrangements to go to dinner and then I invited her back to my place and she said, well, you know what that means. And uh, anyway, she came back to my place and I lost my nerve. I just lost my nerve and she left uh, half an hour, 40 minutes later. I didn't know how to, I was, I just lost my nerve. And so I, I don't think I'm the only guy who you know, sometimes loses his nerve around women. Well, not just around women, in all sorts of social situations at times. You know, the, the shame will kick in or the low self-esteem will kick in or I just lose my nerve. I just clam up you know i feel small in a big world i feel lost i feel lonely i feel like oh, nobody here cares about me it's pointless to try to talk to anyone but some of these techniques might be up to help with this you while sexual tension builds and he cannot enjoy it because he's like turned all of human interaction into this weird manipulative game yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. that's an ongoing theme throughout this where like they cannot process human interaction except through the lens of the game at one point mystery has a conversation with a girl he likes they cannot process human interaction except through the lens of the game. Maybe that lens helps in some circumstances process human interaction. Like human intimacy is challenging. And so sometimes we have to you know, make it more abstract or look at it through the lens of a game, right? Uh, it's about what works in the final analysis. So this is just uh, one technique which can be abused, which can be overused, which can be toxic, which can be, even be fatal. And then for other people, 
it's a helpful technique overcoming initial awkwardness to make relations with the opposite sex smoother and more comfortable for all parties concerned. And he calls it comfort building. Oh my god. As in like trying to make her comfortable with him. I'm like, yeah, that's what getting to know someone is. You that's just like idiot. literally <laughs> you're having a conversation. Yes. Right. This has always been my like deep melancholy whenever I hear about this stuff because mm -hmm. it's hard to find connections with other people. It's just hard like as a human being and it's the thing that all of us want the most but you can you can't just come out and say like I'd really like to form a connection with you. E everything has to be done in this kind of between the lines way but you're gamifying it to the point where you're not even participating in these conversations it feels like. It, it's just how deep the insecurity runs right like right. they have to imagine everything as part of the game because if it's not then they're sort of like laid bare. Yeah. There is a, another guy Ross, whose primary game is... Yeah, a lot of people are insecure. Guess what? These two hosts are insecure at times. Nobody is secure in all situations and circumstances. So there are many situations where I feel cool, calm, and collected. I might even feel cool, calm, and collected right now. But there are other situations where I feel incredibly awkward and lost and lonely and small and unworthy. John says, part of the deal we live stream viewers have with Luke is that he exchanges embarrassing anecdotes that have been educational for him, but in exchange, we have to hear him post of sexual conquests. <laughs> Quote, technology, okay. which is a word for like psychological techniques. Oh no. It's like hypnosis adjacent. He believes that he is a master of hypnosis. And yeah, the chat makes a very good point. This book addresses all the things that they're criticizing and, and addresses it in a much more human, open, honest, vulnerable way than these two smug critiquers. So he does things like try to get women to associate positive emotions with him. At one point, he's talking to a, a waitress and he's like, picture someone that you're attracted to and like, look at me. And then later he tells Neil like, yeah. Now she's associating attraction with me. I was oh like, my you made her picture body. someone attractive, like someone else. And, <laughs> and, and they're like, now look at me. Now look at me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like her stupid girl brain thinks I'm the guy from her, from her fan. Either it works or it doesn't. Right? There's a street tested stuff that these pickup artists are charging people. Right. And people are then going out and trying these tips. If they weren't working, people would be using them. So. You've got two hosts with IQs probably in the 130s, and uh, they're critiquing the efforts of people who don't have those IQ advantages and don't have many other advantages. Right? There are plenty of 95 and 105 IQ people who are a little awkward and have difficulty connecting, and they find some of these tips and tricks useful. Right? Things that work on a 95 IQ woman or a 105 IQ woman not necessarily going to work on the 145 IQ woman. Fantasies. Now when she hears it's a little bit like with Donald Trump. Like Donald Trump is really good at speaking to a prole audience. Like uh Donald Trump, you know, knows how to aim at the you know, the ninety, ninety-five, one hundred IQ regular American and he connects with them. Right? He's the prole whisperer. And he's not a lesser man because he's able to communicate effectively with people who are two standard deviations of IQ. You know, below the pundit class. The bell, she'll think of me. <laughs> There's an incredible bit where Neil is saying something that the hypnosis guy does not like. And the guy goes, stop. And Neil is like, this was a hypnosis technique to interrupt your train of thought. Uh, I was like, yeah, man. Uh, master of human psychology using the advanced hypnosis technique of screen. <laughs> 
oh, so these guys never have an exaggerated sense of their own importance. These guys never say anything pompous or pretentious. These guys never try to lord it over others. We all try to lord it over other people at times. We all are pompous and pretentious. We're all pricks at times. We're all a-holes at times. We're all smug and superior at times. There's just very little sense of humanity in these hosts. You mean stop <laughs> when you want to interrupt someone. <laughs> So obviously uh, there are many things these guys do that are just scumbag shit, uh, just terrible things. Um, yeah. There are systems for getting around women who have spouses, right? Who um, are... So one of these guys is a lawyer. And guess what? There are things that lawyers routinely do that are just scumbag things. They're just horrible things. They're just unethical things. The other guy here is a writer and a journalist. There are frequently things that uh, journalists pull that absolute scumbag things. So what scumbag tricks have these two pulled i pulled my share of scumbag tricks we all have right? we've all fallen short of propriety people in sales right they, they do all sorts of unethical things people in law do all sorts of unethical things people in accounting and dentistry and doctors all right the world is filled with people manipulating and trying to take advantage of other people Hang around the spouses so you can hook up with the women. Love it. There are a lot of tactics that involve like ignoring the person you're interested in or being mean to them in some way. Okay, so teasing someone or ignoring someone, that's not a scumbag trick, right? A playful negative comment, right? That's not a scumbag trick, right? There is normal marital sadism. Men and women married to each other routinely do things to deliberately hurt the other partner even in the best of marriages even in the best of marriages they are each routinely engaging in normal marital sadism they are each routinely deliberately doing things to hurt the other spouse we are constantly deliberately doing things to hurt other people if these hosts are unaware of that then they are disconnected from what it means to be human people are not naturally good right these hosts on the left, they believe people are naturally good, and so this kind of behavior is shocking to them. From a traditional perspective, you know, pickup artistry is low class, it is antisocial, it's not something encouraged, and there's no ethical pickup artistry. But these hosts, they, they want the pickup artists to engage in only ethical pickup artistry, right? Just like people in the liberal left, they want you know ethical BDSM. They want ethical swinging. You know, they want you know, ethical forms of sexual sin. Well, from a traditionalist perspective, these are all sins. There's no ethical way to practice these sins. Way. Wasn't this the thing? If if there's a hot chick, you should hit on her less hot friend. Yes, because yes. like she's used to being the center of attention, but all of a sudden Sheila is getting the guy hitting on her, and it makes there's nothing unethical or scumbag or about employing this technique or feel weird and then you can like scoop her up later or something that is correct uh that's a big part of the book um there is one part of the book where it, there, there's like diagrams that are drawn out like <laughs> fucking war plans like there's two girls at the bar and like i will move in from this direction oh my god so some people who are less intelligent than these hosts need more precise instructions they even benefit from diagrams they need to have all sorts of things spelled out for them that the 135 IQ guy doesn't. 
right? Communicating in a way that uh, 100 IQ people can understand you, it's not a bad thing, right? You're not a scumbag, you're not lesser because you speak in a way that is comprehensible to a larger swath of the population. God, I'm going to send you a diagram. Oh, you're sending me the actual fucking diagram? Jesus Christ. No, 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 not that one. Okay. This is a different diagram. The book is full of diagrams. <laughs> Wait, what the fuck is this? This is from Mysteries Workshop, and it is a bunch of eggs. Should, should you explain what an egg is? So if you want to research my point about how we're all constantly doing things to deliberately hurt each other, uh, just look up normal marital sadism. There was an article on Slate about this. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, I guess so, even though it's such a part of the culture now that I assume I know. everyone knows. But a neg is when you intentionally say something rude with the idea being that they will be a little bit offended and therefore sort of want to win your affection. Right. So it's a female diagram, like a woman, and then next to each, I guess, body part is like a neg. So like a neg associated with each feature. Is that a wig? Oh, well, it looks nice anyway. I think your hair would look better up. What do you call that hairstyle? The waffle? I like that skirt. Those are really popular these days. Those shoes look really comfortable. And then another one is you kind of have man hands. <laughs> that one's just mean. Yeah, some of them are like way too mean where it's just like you look like a stupid bitch. <laughs> and <it's, laughs> I, I don't understand how that's working. I, uh, a big theme of, of negging is that I don't know if this is a 2005. Oh, so without negative, negging people would be critical to each other. Without negging, people wouldn't be mean to each other. People are mean to each other all the time, right? Uh, do you ever watch a football game? You know, people are colliding with each other at a high rate of speed, being highly damaging to one another. This is the nature of reality. People are not naturally good. People are not naturally pro-social. People are not naturally kind and honest. All these things need to be developed by society. So the left liberal view is that people are born basically good, and then society corrupts people. The traditionalist conservative perspective is that people are not born basically good, and society, generally speaking, helps people to become more pro-social, right? That's how I understand reality. Thing, But they're, like, very convinced that telling a girl that, like, another girl at the club is wearing the same thing will just, like, devastate her. Oh, yeah. I, I don't I don't know if that's true or not, uh, <laughs> but they, they seem to believe very much that it is. What's so frustrating about this is, like, there's a lot of people that really struggle in these kind of interactions. Like talking to a person at a bar who you don't know is the it's just the worst form of human interaction. And it like it sucks that this is what people have to do to date. Right. So I get that like people would want to sort of systematize this or have conversation openers that are more interesting than what do you do for a living or like what's your name or something. I sort of get the need for it. But instead of guiding people to like, okay, here's how to have like a meaningful conversation or like here's how to make somebody comfortable. It's like this shit where it's like here's how to manipulate somebody. Here's how to seem like you're giving somebody a compliment but you're actually denigrating them and establish oh so if we didn't have this there wouldn't be you know so much manipulation going on between the sexes already we have high amounts of manipulation going on between men and women this movement is talking about manipulation that's more effective at breaking the ice so that people can connect dominance in a conversation right. like this is where it goes from like oh they're helping people into just like okay you're a huge piece of shit if you're telling people to right do this. you know th so there's tons of like little shitty tactics they do but more than like any given tactic is offensive there's just this general sense of sociopathy running through everything yeah like they have zero interest in the joy of other people oh as a, opposed to say the legal profession right? is it sociopathy 
just running rampant through the legal profession. Yeah. Right. There's sociopathy running rampant through all sorts of professions. Like doctors are constantly performing unnecessary surgeries so they can make money. Doctors are performing gender-affirming care because it means that their patients will have to come back for repeated expensive treatment. Doctors are removing women's ovaries, right? performing hysterectomies and oophorectomies, unnecessarily shortening women's lives, decreasing their pleasure and happiness in life right? because they get to be more powerful and they get to make more money. So sociopathy is rampant in society. It's not just uh, something that comes from the, the pickup game. So what are some tools to help people navigate a challenging and frequently sociopathic world? What, what are some tools to help an ordinary bloke who say low average in looks and intelligence and charm and personality and job status and social status? What are some tips and tricks to help you know, this bloke who has not been dealt a kind card in life? What are some tips and tricks that give this guy a chance at connecting with a woman and perhaps finding some happiness? Well, except as a way to get things, zero concern for the pain or discomfort of other people, except right. insofar as it interferes with their ability to get things. Right. Sometimes it feels like they're maybe humanizing women, but then you quickly realize it's like incidental. Like they'll say things like, <laughs> don't, don't pressure women or make them feel unsafe. But it's not like, don't make them feel unsafe. Oh my God, this is a book that is written for men who feel intimidated by women. This is a book you know, written for men who are awkward around women. And so it is written for them. It's not written for women, right? It's not written for men like these hosts. It's not written to attain the approval of gay men. It is not written to attain the approval of society's elites, right? It's written for ordinary blokes who are struggling in life. Because they're human beings. Uh, it's right. like, don't make them feel unsafe because then you might not hook up. It feels like the, the original sin of all of this is a lot of people. And the chat says, you know, there's a volume problem. Right? Uh, Luke, your volume is low compared to the video that you're playing. Thank you. I need the feedback. I don't have the all the tools and the, the setup that I would have back home in Los Angeles. So, yeah, there will be some technological inferior elements of these streams, but I benefit from your feedback. Accurate criticism makes my show better, and that is very accurate criticism that you're giving to me. So I am boosting up my volume. People are just not well suited to pick people up in fucking bars. Right. It's an insanely difficult environment. Yes. <laughs> like, I don't consider myself someone who has terrible social skills or whatever, but... This book isn't just to pick up women in bars. I remember I was just walking across a college campus and I just saw this blonde woman walking towards me and I was able to open with her and I was able to talk to her. Then I was able to get her phone number and then I eventually went out with her. Right. I've had the ability at times to talk and open and, and meet and date you know, women in all sorts of areas because I was born with the gift of the gap. When you have the gift of the gap, it is a lot easier to connect with women. You have a lot more advantages, but not everyone is born with the gift of the gap. And so how do you help people who are awkward? And the book is clearly not just for, for bars. When you're in line at a grocery store, you know, how do you talk to a woman? when you're waiting for your car at a car wash, when you're waiting for the light to change, when you're a pedestrian, when you're in the park, all right? 
how do you open with someone that you really want to open with, someone that you really want to connect with, but it's just not something you're good at. Uh, life hasn't perhaps dealt you the best hand of cards. So how do you overcome your disadvantages for a chance at happiness? But I have, I like the, the idea of just walking up to a stranger in a bar and trying to like become their friend. Nightmare. Yeah, total nightmare. Like a lot of these guys should be like taking a cooking class or like learning <laughs> French. Now, that's a good tip too. Like if you want to connect with women, it helps to just play yourself in situations where you're going to be around women that you're highly likely to be attracted to. So yeah, I paid $350 for these Sony headphones about eight months ago, and I absolutely think it's, it's worth it. They've got great noise cancellation uh, features, so I'm very happy with these uh, Sony headphones. Or something. Don't don't give them new angles. Don't give them new think, angles. Think of all the opportunities for negging <laughs> in a cooking class. A bird, another one, huh? <laughs> I guess he just didn't let it prove enough. <laughs> uh, you know. And so guess what? Negging, like all these techniques, are situation dependent, right? In some situations, with some people, some appropriate negging creates laughter and joy and connection between people. In other situations, certain types of nagging will just embarrass, humiliate, and drive people away from you. So it all depends on how you employ these techniques, in which situations you employ these techniques, with which women you employ these techniques. When I get together with my mates, there's a lot of nagging going on, because that's how bros talk to each other. And some women enjoy you know, a modest amount of negging at certain times. And you have to be able to read women to see if they're in the mood for a little negging, if they're going to laugh at a little negging. Everything's situation dependent. Personality dependent. It's, it's also not women alone who are treated poorly here. Like, these guys are all hanging out, and a couple of them seem to be friends, but their social dynamics are riddled with jealousy and mistrust. It's like they replicate all the toxic masculinity of like a 1980. Yeah, all right. These are, generally speaking, awkward dudes who don't have a long history of social success and status. All right. They're not wired right. They're not wired conventionally. All right. These are people who are struggling in life. And guess what? They bring their problems with them. They bring drugs. They're rapists. And some of them, I assume, are good people. But yeah, you've got a lot of struggling people here. Just like you go to 12-step meetings, there are a lot of struggling people and a lot of sociopaths. So as opposed to, say, the law profession or as opposed to the workplace, but many workplaces, maybe most workplaces, have considerable elements of toxicity, have considerable elements of all the same things that these two elites criticizing the society of uh, pickup artists for these high school football team in a movie right but with none of like the male bonding yeah because some of these guys would be better off just like making male friends like some of these guys need intimacy the last thing i will say about like the strategies is that it's hard to divorce them from like the age and type of the girls that they seem to be pursuing so they love the idea of like the hot Miami, L.A. club girl, like mm -hmm. blonde and big fake boobs. They love fake boobs for some reason. Okay. You know, this is the early to mid aughts. So they're always being. Yeah. You have to use different situations for different women in different circumstances. All right. The, the 135 IQ lawyer is not going to go for the same tricks and tips 
that uh, enable you to have success with the you know 110 IQ barmaid or stripper. I'm like, bro, this girl is so hot. She's got the flattest hair I've ever seen in my life. You know, but like the main thing here is that a lot of these girls are like these are two dudes, right? The podcast is called "If Books Could Kill." The hosts are two men. Michael Hobbs is the gay one who sounds like a woman. Peter Shamshiri is an attorney. They're both definitely on the left. But yeah, the, the gay one, Michael Hobbs, definitely sounds like a woman. He's not a woman, but guys, he's a bloke. Are super young. And yeah. it's a thing where you're like, are these great strategies for picking up women? Or are these great strategies for picking up 21-year-old women in LA, right, in 2004? Right. Also... Should we mention the fact that because most people are drinking, there's also like a level of genuine questions of consent here, too? It's weird how little he mentions about that. Yeah. At no point is he like, yeah, this girl was a little bit wasted. And yet they're all at clubs that, you know, all the time yeah. they're, they're they're partying, they're drinking. Obviously, that's part of what's happening here. I would be a lot more like of a charming Lothario if the person I'm trying to pick up has had seven beers. <laughs> you don't have to have like a blacklight with you to get somebody like that to go home with you. Imagine, you know, some some poor girl is like at the end of her night just raging drunk and you just blast a blacklight in her face. <laughs> it's like, wow, <laughs> what a lit here. Well, a lot of blokes are around very drunk girls and they still can't have any success. Right. It's not like drunk women will just go home with anyone or just have sex with anyone. Yeah, this book isn't ethically, morally uplifting or sensitive. Yeah, it's about picking up women, which from my traditional perspective is not a healthy or pro-social activity. But these two guys speak as though there should be you know, ethical pickup. Now, it's not a strict age which brains mature. Right? Generally speaking, an 18-year-old brain is more mature than a 16-year-old. But it's not like people just are mentally mature at age 25. The law has to draw a line somewhere, but people are still developing all through their 20s. Right? People at, at 13 sometimes are more mature than other people at 23. But generally speaking, 15-year-olds are more mature than 12-year-olds. Generally speaking, 18-year-olds are more mature than 15-year-olds. But there's... there's no you know, guaranteed minimum age at which you know, everybody attains adult maturity, right? Uh, people with an IQ of 90 have less agency than people with an IQ of 120. So it's not a book about ethical pickup. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Um, so Mystery and Neil hit it off at this workshop, right? And Mystery is sort of like, makes him his protege. They grow close. Mm -hmm. They they ultimately end up traveling, doing workshops together. Mm -hmm. And at one point early on, Mystery is like, you can't just be Neil, bro. You need to have a seduction nickname. Why don't we call you Style? Because Neil, I guess, was like moderately... Well, I converted to Orthodox Judaism and I adopted a Hebrew name, Levi Ben Abraham. When I went to Kundalini Yoga, people there were adopting Kundalini Yoga names. So it's not you know, weird or bizarre or contemptuous that you draw that you join an intense in-group and they give you a name. That's pretty normal form of human interaction. All dressed, whatever that meant in 2005. Okay. All these dudes have stupid nicknames. Uh, you've got Mystery and Style. There's Sin, Juggler, <laughs> Two-Timer, Grimble. <laughs> 
that's that's a hobbit name yeah not everyone has like a cool nickname right some yeah. guys just have stupid nicknames and you're like is that getting you laid <laughs> it also makes it extremely funny when someone involved doesn't have an insane nickname like you'll have a dozen dudes with these with these crazy nicknames and they're like and then also there was ross <laughs> so if someone converted to orthodox judaism and took on the name levy ben abraham but they just start making fun of the person oh that's not a cool name you sound like a loser bro Right. If you heard some of these Kundalini yoga names from Sanskrit, I assume that they're not going to necessarily sound all cool. So what? You've got you've got one more thing that helps you to belong to an intense in-group, right? You you've got the beginnings of an identity and a, a place within within a group, and uh, you are going along with the traditions of your new tribe. Why would I have contempt for that any more than if a white man joined an Indian tribe? Or here in Australia, you have white people who join Aboriginal tribes and they take on, guess what, Aboriginal names. I bet these two left-wing podcast hosts would not be sneering and contemptuous and laughing at the Aboriginal names that all these white people take on when they join an Aboriginal tribe or when someone converts to Orthodox Judaism or some other you know, more prestigious religion. That's like a. That's like how U two is Bono, the Edge, and Larry and Adam. <laughs> they weren't there that day when they were doing the names. So are these guys introducing themselves like when they meet women at clubs? Are they saying hi? I'm Style. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Um, but okay. for the most part, they are supposed to. Um, they are like gr- girls throughout the book know Neil as Style. They, these guys are like trying to. So when I push live, I put on a persona. I'm not just the same bloke I was before I pushed live. I don't talk to you the same way that I talk to people at the coffee shop or the synagogue or the garden center. I put on a persona in all sorts of areas of life. When I'm at work, I put on a professional persona. I think that's pretty normal. People put on a persona in all sorts of areas of life. And, oh, my God, that people might use it when they're at a club or at a bar when they're trying to meet women. They put on a persona seems pretty reasonable to me i don't think it's something to be filled with contempt about you have these entirely separate personas and it's something that you like present to the chick oh my god you know what this is you know how they deliberately write the nigerian prince emails to be like really bad so that they don't waste their time with people who are like gonna check it and you want to get the real dummies oh, right yeah oh shit you're right Part of this well guess what in some areas of life these hosts are the real dummies, right? There's none of us who in certain areas of life are not stupid and, and dumb. Right? so these two podcast hosts act like they're so superior, but yeah, guess what? When it comes to love and sex and dating and mating, right? It often touches on very primal parts of us that completely bypass the rational brain, right? And so sometimes we act out of animal instinct not just with regard to dating and love and sex, but with regard to all sorts of areas of life, right? The, the lizard brain isn't inherently you know, inferior to the, the prefrontal cortex, which you know, powers the, the rational brain. Feels like this is fulfilling the same purpose that like there's a huge number of people who the minute you introduce yourself as fucking hi, I'm Grimble at a <laughs> bar are just like, okay, have a good night. Right. If you... If you if some guy introduces you himself as juggler after taking lint off your top 
and you don't break <laughs> into a full sprint in the other direction, yeah. then uh, maybe you're a more a little more susceptible to the tactics of the game. That's the thing. And then it's, it's this like survivorship bias where like... It... But guess what? All of us are vulnerable to tactics, right? You may be vulnerable to tactics in the, the dating game. Other people are vulnerable to tactics in salesmanship. None of us are beyond manipulation, right? These two talk as though they are beyond manipulation. They would never manipulate others, right? These sort of tricks would never work on them. Well, guess what? There, there are tricks that work on all of us, right? There are people who have our number. Like all of us can be fooled. Or all of us have our weak points. All of us can be flattered and effectively manipulated. All of us are vulnerable. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Anybody who makes it past the Grimble stage is like, you don't actually have to be that charming at that point because they're just like open to sort of whatever weird experience is going to come next. It's true. Yeah, let's just have contempt for these people who are trying to do the best they can with an inferior deck of cards to what you would doubt. So let's write ethical pickup. Chapter one, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm hoping to start a sexual relationship with you. Do you consent to continue our interaction? And then you have to ask every step of the way. Is it all right? Do I have your permission to buy you a drink? Do I have your permission to ask about your job? Do I have your permission to ask about your family? Do I have your permission to drive you home? Do I have your permission to rub your neck? Do I have your permission to kiss your forehead? Do I have your permission to kiss your cheek? Do I have permission to kiss you on the lips? Do I have permission to unbutton your shirt? Do I have your permission to unhook your bra? Do I have permission to take off your skirt? Do I have permission to take off your underwear? I really feel very strongly right now. Do I have permission to enter you? May I continue to enter you? I'm about to ejaculate. Do I have your permission? Ethical pickup 101. I mean, and, and they are, you know, they, they are pretty explicit that although some of like the real experts are like, I can get any girl. A big part of actually doing this is just like you approach a lot of girls. Yeah. And a lot of them are like, fuck off. Yeah. And eventually you find someone who enjoys rune readings. <laughs> right. I mean, a lot of it is just numbers. It has to be. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. So we should probably talk about Mystery himself uh, because his personal troubles are a big sort of B story oh. in this book. Um, he is. Yes, obviously, guys who are desperate for help with learning to talk to women are not going to have even an average level of mental health. And you know, the people who get deeply into this game are going to be damaged people. A huge piece of shit. Uh, he pressured his last girlfriend into getting a boob job and becoming a stripper. Then, okay, question from the chat: Is there no place for ethical standards within pickup endeavors? Well, by any traditional means, you know, the pickup world is you know outside of that which is licit, without outside of that which is regarded as morally acceptable. So, there are just varying degrees of degradation in the pickup game, but there is no ethical pickup. There's no ethical sexual promiscuity from a traditional perspective. All, right? All sexual promiscuity from a traditional perspective is degrading. Some forms of sexual promiscuity are more degrading than others. So, for example, if you sleep with a woman and then murder her, that's, you know, that's particularly heinous dumped her when she wouldn't have sex with other girls okay. if you guessed that perhaps someone like mystery is more interested in controlling women than attracting them 
Congrats. It is it is you yeah. who is, in fact, the master of psychology. <laughs> At one point, they are in bed. Well, guess what? Mystery is a deeply flawed human being who is vulnerable to other people, who sometimes gets manipulated by, by women, who sometimes is degraded by women, who is sometimes taken advantage of by, by women, who is betrayed by women, who is deeply hurt by women. It's not like any of these pickup artists are just invulnerable, right? I have interviewed thousands of people, and, and one factor that struck me in virtually every interview is that everyone has considerable areas of vulnerability. Everybody up close seems much more vulnerable than they did before I met them. Oh, grade. Uh, and there's a little story about Mystery getting a girl at the bar infatuated with him, and she starts calling him and stuff like that. And I think you're supposed to be sort of impressed that like this girl met him for a brief period of time and is now obsessed with him. It mm-hmm. is later revealed that she is 17 years old. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Mystery, for reference, is I believe in his late 20s at the Okay, so in some places, the age of consent is 14, other places 15, other places 16, other places 18. Right? There's not a huge difference between a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old, unless you're in a particular jurisdiction where that makes it a crime. But it's not more or less moral if the jurisdiction says that the age of consent is 14, 16, 18, or 21. Right? Secular law does not make something inherently you know, more moral or less moral. Well, maybe a little bit. But uh, plenty of 25-year-olds don't have a mature mind yet, right? Plenty of people who are 27 are not suited for sexual promiscuity. Uh, Once you start entering the world of sexual promiscuity, you have left moral standards behind, right? You are just entering a world of varying degrees of moral degradation and social disruption. This point may be a little older. So, yeah, I would say that it's actually uh, not impressive to get yeah. a 17 year old to be a little bit obsessive yeah. with you. In fact, every 17 year old is a little bit obsessive with everyone. They have a slight crush on, crush on yeah. That's the whole point of being yeah. 17. Yeah. The big part of why it's so fucking gross uh, to, <laughs> to, uh, to hit on 17 year olds. Yeah. At one point, Neil is asking for advice on hooking up with a girl that he like actually likes. And mystery's advice is to get her alone and uh, take his dick out. Just like take your dick out and, uh, and start jerking off. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is there a prop for that? I feel like I'm probably in the bag. Of like what? Like a little puppet? Or something? Uh, this is only the props God gave you for this one. <laughs> um, mystery is also very clearly emotionally unstable. The book opens up with a flash forward of a mental breakdown he's having. Uh, mm-hmm. There are scenes where he... Yeah, the whole book, the whole scene is filled with mentally unstable people. Mentally unstable people are the ones who are most desperate in need of uh, tools to connect with other people. Right, so this is not a group of cardiologists. Right? This is not a group of academics. He references his abusive mm-hmm. father in ways that make it clear he is like not well and could use some therapy. At one point, mm-hmm. he snaps, "Don't tell me what to do." My dad used to tell me what to do, and he he'll also say things that are like so on the nose that it's hard to believe you're reading it. He at one point he says, "I feel really bad about myself," and then a girl sleeps with me, and I feel good again. <laughs> Well, <laughs> <laughs> that is sort of what I suspected. Okay, so you can laugh at that and have contempt for that, but that is the experience of a lot of men. But that certainly was my experience for much of my life. I was feeling bad about myself. I got a girl to sleep with me. I felt better about myself. And people would do all sorts of tricks to you know, try to like themselves more, to feel better about themselves. 
mystery. You're in the right line of work, mystery. Dudes yeah. will literally invent a system for seducing women before going to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other teachers, the other pickup artist teachers in the community. Of course, they call themselves gurus. Obviously. And now, style. Exp oh, because if only these dudes would go to therapy. And I absolutely believe that therapy helps some people. But a lot of people are not helped by therapy. It's not like therapy is overwhelmingly likely to help you. It's not overwhelmingly likely to help you. Some people are helped by some forms of therapy. But it's not like uh, therapy is the panacea for these people's troubles. Therapy can help some people. 12-step programs can help some people. Church can help some people. Synagogue can help some people. Getting a mentor can help some people. Getting a friend can help some people. Right? There are a lot of things that can improve your life. Presley says that they all have one thing in common, which is that they are obsessed with the idea that they're the best at this and that the other teachers are, like, not as good. Oh, nice. And Neil describes, like, describes it as, like, a competing group of cults. And chat says, a man who pursues women who are themselves seeking promiscuity is a world apart from a man who seduces and preys upon more virtuous women. But um, more, more virtuous women are going to be much less vulnerable, so... For example, overwhelmingly Orthodox Jews are still virgins when they married, and it wouldn't really matter how much pickup artistry was practiced on them. Right? It's it's not going to deter them from the you know the values and the rituals of their community. So, game is for people who are playing. Right? Virtuous women are not looking to play; they're looking to date to mate and you know each centered around like one one weirdo yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm gonna read you a quote from ross the hypnotist guy mm -hmm. when he's sort of like trying to bring neil into his crew <laughs> you are being led into the inner sanctum of power my young apprentice and the price for betrayal is dark beyond measure of your mortal mind keep quiet and keep your promises and i will keep opening the door this man is like 29 this man <laughs> Okay, so why would someone speak that way? Because he has achieved a level of respect among many of his followers that enable him to speak that way. People just don't speak that way out of the blue, right? He's been socially conditioned that uh, that's an acceptable way to speak because he has affected so many lives. He's had such a profound impact on people that they treat it with such reverence that he then feels entitled to say this. Much of what we say and do is socially conditioned. Right. If the society in which this guy was operating made saying such things as that unthinkable, he would not have said them. And he said them because that kind of attitude is be reinforced by his life results. A college degree. <laughs> Why are you talking like this? No, I, that guy is even older, I think. <laughs> Ross is one of the older guys in the community. It's like... Yeah. It's very Fedora era, you know? Yeah. These, these dudes who are trying to be like, I am I am a master of the dark arts. It's like you're sleeping with buzzed 21-year-olds. <laughs> and, you know, there's a running theme that a lot of these gurus, not all of them, but some of them are fraudulent and are like only good at picking up anyone in very limited conditions. Oh, as opposed to academics are only very good in one limited area. I Many of us are only good in a certain number of limited areas. This is not a limitation that is exclusive to pickup artists. Again, namely like very young and impressionable women in clubs who have had five drinks. Oh, There's a point okay. where Style takes Ross, the hypnotist, to a fancy Hollywood party. 
where Ross just embarrasses himself repeatedly, including when he crawls around on all fours pretending to be a dog sniffing Carmen Electra's ass. Oh my god. Wow. That's quite the 2004 cameo as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so you can be a big deal and a big shot in one sphere of life and you get taken out of that sphere like a fish out of water and you don't belong in other spheres of life. That's not unusual. We we all seek spheres of life where we can dominate. Like, why do you think I do these live streams? I get to dominate my live stream. And you may get to dominate your STEM club. And you may get to dominate your church, you know, volunteer for the homeless committee. Uh, like, we're all looking for areas where we can be dominant. You know, we all want to win. All right? We all want to come first. We all want to matter. We all want to feel special. And so we all seek areas of life where we can excel. We're naturally inclined to those areas of life where we excel. But none of us gets to be exempt from whole spheres of life where we struggle. The mighty in one area of life are absolutely pathetic in a different area. My father was very at ease lecturing in front of 1,200 people. But uh, one-on-one with someone who wasn't buying into my father's very narrow interests, he was pretty lost for conversational ability. The bulk of this book is just like tales of him trying to pick up girls or Mm -hmm. observing other guys trying to pick up girls in various settings. Insanely boring. I mean, just super boring. And he keeps it interesting in in part because they're in L.A. Uh, Insanely boring to these two dudes, but uh, overwhelmingly hundreds of thousands of people read this book and found it absolutely fascinating. So that these two dudes, including a gay dude, find you know, heterosexual love boring is uh, not a particularly impressive or profound point. And his Neil's profile is sort of rising as Mm -hmm. the book goes on, not just within the community, but also like with Mm -hmm. his journalism, because he's writing about this as it goes. So he starts getting invited to cool parties and shit. So at one point he has a pickup competition with Heidi Fleiss, the Hollywood madam. Okay. At one point, Neil nearly gets his target uh, intercepted by Andy Dick, uh, and then Andy Dick uh, expresses some interest in Neil himself. Okay. There's a night where everyone at a party is being super nice to Neil and uh, telling him that they love him and stuff like that, and he's like, sorry, what's going on? And then someone reveals that, they, that everyone thinks he's Moby. <laughs> so when I've been on porn sets, they weren't particularly interested in which rabbis I knew. And when I was around various Orthodox rabbis, they weren't particularly interested in which porn stars I knew. And uh, neither group was particularly interested in, you know, which professional athletes I'd, I'd interviewed. So, yeah, different people have different interests. <laughs> <laughs> there were only two bald white dudes in L.A. at that time. So I'm sure that happened a lot. He's doing interviews uh, as his part of his job as a journalist, and he's interviewing celebrities like Britney Spears. What? And he's u- using, like pickup artist techniques to get them to like open up okay right? um and it's, and it's sort of working britney spears likes him <laughs> he's like he's like is that lint on your overalls she's like, <laughs> like i love you neil i'll tell you everything uh, it's amazing that uh, neil strauss is able to use pickup techniques on stars like britney spears i mean that's amazing that's just legitimately not ironically amazing that is fascinating and these guys just think it's ludicrous and absurd, and they have nothing but contempt. That's something that most normal people would would find interesting. But they're, they're just above the concerns of ordinary mortals. 
he meets Courtney Love for a piece. Okay. They end up hitting it off, and she comes and crashes with him and his friends for a bit. Okay. And again, this is like 2004, so uh, I don't know if you recall, but we're talking about like the dead center of a very public struggle with addiction and mental health yeah. in Courtney Love's life. Yeah. But again, for the most part, the book is just countless variations of the same basic dynamic. Like, they right. show up somewhere, there's a blonde hottie with fake boobs, and someone tries to pick her up with varying degrees of success. There's also the thing where clearly Neil Strauss is like a, a charming, intelligent guy. He starts off the book saying, like, I'm a I'm a dork who can't get laid, but he's also, yeah. Yeah, so pickup artists and their followers are awkward, deeply damaged people. And what type of people do they pick up? Equally damaged, right? It's not like virtuous, strong, withered women are hanging out in bars, you know, talking to strangers and going home with strangers. We're talking about a community where damaged people form bonds and then blow up bonds with other damaged people. Right. This is not a pickup game that is going on at church or synagogue. I, I, I think a very likable, intelligent, yeah. educated guy with a cool job. People will be interested in someone who's... What about prolonged eye contact, 40? How long is too long? More than about two seconds, maybe three seconds at the most is too long. But if anyone is holding your, your, your eye contact for, say, longer than a second, probably an IOI, an indicator of interest. But I know I have discomforted many people with too prolonged eye contact. So I think depending on the level of intimacy that you have with the person, Right. The, the more intimate you are with the person, the longer it's appropriate to hold eye contact. But if it's with a stranger, definitely no longer than three seconds. Also, women expect more eye contact than uh, dudes do. Like confident and accomplished and all that. Right. Like it's not like a total mystery. Why? Why Neil is good at this. So no eye contact is awkward and weird and too much eye contact is awkward and weird. So you want intermittent eye contact, uh, particularly with women, but, you know, don't stare, don't hold it for longer than three seconds at a time, but also don't look off for longer than 20 seconds at a time without coming back to some level of eye contact. After a bit. Right. And it's not, it's not like the magic tricks that are doing it <laughs> or the sort of like the gimmicky things or even like the manipulation. It's probably just a little bit of maybe practice or like little tips with like how to make other people feel comfortable and build rapport. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge part of it. And the rest of it is just replicating confidence until it turns yeah. into actual confidence. Yeah. And that's yeah, really yeah. all there is to it. I, it never feels like there's a science here. Yeah. So as the book moves on, the pickup artist. It's never a time in your life where you're just absolutely confident in all situations. Right? Learn to grow confident at certain situations, and then your confidence grows when your confidence grows. But there'll always be situations in which you're not terribly confident. So it's not like you just move to a state of absolute confidence, you know, everywhere you go. That's very rare. Industry is booming, right? Like tons of different workshops are springing up. It's becoming more popular. Techniques are becoming refined. Neil is himself becoming a bit of an icon within the community. He's like writing on their little message boards and stuff like that. And he's just sort of having lots of sex and writing about it mm -hmm. and trying to make it interesting. There's one bit where he like purports to be writing a few paragraphs while having sex. Okay. And the writing like devolves into gibberish. And I was just like, I know you think this is cool, Neil, but it is hack. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not, uh, hack. Yeah. Wasn't there also one of my few memories of this book is that there's like a so I'm just curious, which books have these two blokes authored that received you know, 
more sales and more attention than Neil Strauss's book that they're critiquing. Like, so they are filled with contempt for this book, but uh, I don't believe they published any any book that's you know anything comparable to this level of success. An entire fucking chapter of him having a threesome, yeah, and it's like really long, and it 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 didn't feel integral to the plot at all. It was just like you really wanted me to know about the threesome you had. There are there are several scenes where you're like, I don't feel like this is driving the plot forward, Neil. It really yeah. feels like you wanted to tell me about this girl that you had sex with. Yeah. There's a ton of that, and there, yeah, there's a threesome scene. It's not. <laughs> interesting um it doesn't feel like the girls really wanted to have threesome and it's like, <laughs> congrats dude i guess you talked two girls yeah. uh, into having a threesome because they wanted to feel accepted <laughs> awesome uh, great. score uh, great so and you know again circle i think for ordinary blokes you know the idea of having a threesome is just unfathomable uh, impossible so uh, ordinary people who find this you know weird and interesting and compelling and not you know bad or bizarre Going back to the age of a lot of these women, at one point he's dating a 19-year-old. Okay. He's in his mid-30s. Nice. And this is like one of the more serious relationships he has in the book. And I'm like, are you like, I can't even fathom this. Like, I, I talk to 19-year-olds the same way I talk to seven-year-olds. You know, like, yeah, yeah, are you can. having fun at school? <laughs> Great. No, you don't. You absolutely do not talk to 19-year-olds the way you talk to seven-year-olds. There is a continent of difference between a 19-year-old and a seven-year-old. But what, at, at 21, that then... Uh, mature 25 28 37 some people are in their 60s and are highly immature there's no set age at which people mature (laughs) it's also it's like this probably isn't true but isn't there something that like if you're a black belt in karate and you get in a bar fight it's technically assault with a deadly weapon because you have these like extra skills i'm sure that that's not true (laughs) you're a lawyer peter you should you should know every law this this was something that kids said in like the schoolyard when i was growing up but if you're as good at manipulating people, especially women, as Neil Strauss is by this point, yeah. it really feels like double unethical to be dating somebody who's 19. Right. Once you're this good at it, it's like your ethical requirement not to go. And uh, what ethical boundaries do these guys breach? Right. Do, do, do people who have the ability to take advantage of other people take advantage of them? Yeah, if they feel like they can get away with it. Right. Uh, taking advantage of others is, is rife. It's not something that's uh, limited to pickup artists. These guys' eyes you know, shed a little more vulnerability, a little more empathy. Go oh, after people that are drinking or that are younger or that have like mental illness stuff where they can't totally consent or whatever. It just seems like there needs to be a lot more like thought put into this, or at least more than he was putting into it at the time. Absolutely. I mean, this this particular story felt. Yeah, people should be putting more thought into their promiscuous sex lives. The traditional perspective is that sex is fire because it is so dangerous and so consuming, so primal and so powerful, you're restricted to marriage. Right? Expecting to be people to be just so thoughtful, so ethical about their promiscuous sex lives from a traditional perspective is absurd. But yeah, liberals want you to have ethical swinging, ethical pickup, ethical BDSM, ethical gay sex, ethical kink from a traditional perspective this is ludicrous like a little like the girl lives with her parents and she has like a one-year-old baby that you know the father's out of the picture and you're just sort of like is this re-? like neil are you are yeah, you fucking kidding me with this are you neil. fucking kidding look once you say it's okay to have sex outside of marriage there's no significant gradation between having sex with 17 year olds 18 year olds 19 year olds with a one-year-old kid 
right? It's pretty much all on the table once you unleash the sexual genie and let it fly free at the marital bottle. It's all on the table. It's absurd to expect people to be more thoughtful and ethical about such a primal drive. You with this, Neil? It's, it feels yeah. really gross. But her shoes looked really comfortable. That's how we got her. <laughs> so as, this bo- as the book goes on, the guys are becoming like more and more consumed with the lifestyle of running game. And again, like it just keeps leading to all of their interactions and experiences being viewed through the game framework. Mm-hmm. There's a, a situation where he has a beef yeah, people who enjoy live streams, right? people who enjoy dissident politics, right? if it's the, the greatest source of meaning and fun and pleasure and oxytocin and dopamine and all the reward hormones are going to do it more and more and more, particularly if they come from a broken place. Usually people who are into dissident politics and extreme things are coming from a broken place. They're looking for something to make the, the pain go away. They find something that makes the pain go away, so they pursue it to ever more absurd lengths. That's certainly been my trajectory. But by pursuing these things to absurd lengths, we're more likely to run into a brick wall so painfully, so profoundly, that we recognize that we're going about life wrong. We decide to reset ourselves with psychotherapy, religious conversion, 12-step, getting a mentor, doing things a more traditional way with a guy nicknamed Papa, and a mutual (laughs) friend is like, hey, Neil, Papa's using tactics on you. And tactics is just like slang for psychological game. And Neil's like, okay, well, what's he doing? And the guy's like, well, he's telling everyone not to talk to you. Okay. Well, is that what tactics is? That's a high school. That's a high school conflict. I'm pretty pretty sure I saw some uh, girls at first grade recess running tactics in that case. (laughs) (laughs) He's calling someone else, but you're on the line, but they don't know that you're on the line. Yeah, it's really sophisticated (laughs) stuff. He and Mystery and some of their buddies set up a sort of clubhouse in L.A., which they call Project Hollywood. Uh, it ends up being like less of a party spot, which is what they envisioned, and more of like a hub for aspiring nerdy pickup artists. Yeah. That all falls apart when a girl moves in and she and Mystery fall in love. Then they fall out of love. And then she and another housemate. Yeah. So the, the deeper question is, how do broken people find connection? Right? How do broken people find love? How do broken people maintain connection? How do broken people maintain love how do people fill the god-sized hole inside how do addicts attain sobriety right until you do these things then all these other pursuits such as pickup artistry or dissident politics or you know attaching to a guru right they're not usually going to work out but how do we help ourselves and help each other achieve levels of real-life connection so that our brain and our central nervous system calms down so that we're able to be present for our relationships, so that we're able to live in reality, have appropriate levels of gratitude for those who've done kind and good things to us. And then when we're that centered, when life becomes more of a joy, then we will naturally look for ways to help other people and we'll start forming virtuous cycles. Until then, we're going to be running around like chickens with our heads cut off, trying this, trying that, trying anything to help the pain and the disconnection and the dislocation go away. All for each other. Uh, The ensuing drama destroys the household. Um, And that sort of brings us back to mystery. We should put a wrap on his story, (laughs) at least for now, because the book is sort of uh, following his ups and downs, and they are... They are intense. Like his ups are pretty wild and his downs are pretty crazy. Uh, I told you he had that sort of... um... So yeah, 15 years ago, 
blokes who are following pickup artists and over the past five years, similar type of blokes have been joining the Proud Boys or Antifa. Mental breakdown uh, that the book opens with, when he is sort of entering that breakdown, he says that he plans to go to Eastern Europe, find two young bisexual women, get them visas, bring them to Canada to be strippers and magician's assistants. And Neil is like, okay, well, you know, my quest for self-improvement has led me to white slavery. And that's where we are right now. As plans go, it's not great. <laughs> and to be clear, just so everyone feels better, at no point does Mystery take any steps towards that plan. Uh, okay. uh, it's less of a serious plan and more of a, just a signal that he's falling apart a little bit. He starts giving away his possessions, including his like bed to his sister. He's like, my sister needs a good bed. Right. He's fairly openly contemplating. Yeah, when my life has fallen apart, I've said ridiculous things too. When my life was falling apart, I concocted you know, desperate measures to make make myself happier <laughs> i mean i think when we've been in desperation we've all said and done desperately stupid things so for my own well-being i try to stay comfortable try to maintain a positive grateful state where i appreciate the things that i have in my life where i'm grateful to the people who've been kind to me and from that grateful perspective i tend to operate more in reality and have an easier and happier connection with myself and with others and make better decisions murder suicide of his father he does not do that because neil gets his family to intervene and put him in the hospital it is wild that vh1 read this and was like let's give this guy a show you know what i i was gonna say <laughs> the producer who read this book and was like you know, oh yeah just imagine there might have been irresponsible tv producers shocking so is social media more a cause of increased anomie or more a symptom? So anomie means sense of dislocation. I think it's overwhelmingly a symptom. I don't believe it is primarily a cause. You know what? Let's take this guy who has an obvious wide array of severe mental health issues that he's burying yeah. inside a shallow pickup artist persona. Let's get him a TV show glorifying that persona. Right. I mean, that guy is a, a, a psychopath unmatched by anyone you read about in the pages of this book itself. Yeah, because mystery on some level is like kind of a tragic figure. Yes. But then the people who are like exploiting him and are like, let's share his lessons with the world. This like broken man. Right. That's so much worse because it's cynical. Oh, God. The, the fact that this book, it sort of ostensibly wraps on this sort of like, well, you know what? This wasn't very fulfilling, I guess, you know, um, he, Neil falls for a girl who likes him for like his actual self and is like not impressed by this pickup artist shit. And he's starting to doubt whether like pickup artistry is the answer to his problems. Right. And so like the last like 40 pages of this book, that's a 450 page book. Yeah, it's absurd. The last 40 pages or so are just him being like, you know, that was fun. But, like, it wasn't very fulfilling. And, you know, tale as old as time, right? Someone feels yeah. a void in their life and they try to fill it with some shallow pursuit or another. And then they realize that they misdiagnosed the void and can't find fulfillment in the shallow pursuits. Um, yeah. It almost it's tried to the point where it feels like hacky and really disingenuous because, like, his, his self-awareness, again, it feels a bit performative at times. Like, he knows that he's too smart to be. Look, he can reduce all plots in, in all literature to about seven. I mean, there, there are various theories about this, so. This is a familiar plot. This guy went off on an adventure and then realized that the you know, adventure wasn't the only answer he needed in life. Right? It, it's not shocking and it's not a hack job either. All right? at, at various times, we become preoccupied with various pursuits and then these pursuits run their course and we realize that we need to move on to something else. 
right? So you you begin a chapter in your life, you end a chapter in your life. That's what Neil Strauss did. He wrote a book about beginning and ending a particular chapter in his life. Seems reasonable and responsible to me. Taking this all too seriously, and he needs to show some self-awareness. So like, right. he'll talk about how shallow this is, how this is all an outgrowth of insecurity and doesn't address the underlying problems. But like, yeah, you just wrote for like 250 pages about all the pussy you got and it was like very yeah. clear that you enjoyed yourself uh writing about yeah. it you know he's giving himself an arc right but ultimately he's essentially publishing a guide to how to do this yeah I, I, and i think like to some degree it's hard to tell whether the arc was real or whether he was like well i just wrote about how i turned myself from a dork into a cool pickup artist and right like, you don't want to end it end the book with like well that was cool and i'm cool now see you later <laughs> like that's right you have to have something a little deeper <laughs> And of course, like the marketing is all about just like, here's how you pick up chicks, right? Yeah. yeah and yeah. it gets glommed onto by pop culture and they, of course, skip over any life lessons or moral implications. They glorify the pickup artist concept. Mystery gets his TV show. Right. The tactics. And it becomes an online marketing course. So why is there so much pickup artistry business? Why is Neil Strauss so successful with this book, The Game? Why was he so successful with his online course? Because it's meeting a incredibly intense need by hundreds of thousands of very awkward men who are unable to connect with women, to date women, to mate with women. All right. Neil Strauss is meeting a need for people who have less in life than the two blokes who are critiquing the book. And you can take the information and abuse it, but you can take the information to make yourself and other people more comfortable and more effective. That they um, talk about throughout the story become so popular that they're like no longer effective, even in the course of the book. Like there's one point towards the end of the book where they're in LA and they, they use one of their stupid lines on some girls. And it's like one of those dumb questions, like the, the like, you know, name an ocean kind of thing. And the girls are like, why have five guys asked me that same question in the past hour? Yeah, <laughs> nice. So as we get into the 2010s, a lot of this stuff, ages pretty poorly yeah. and so neil spent a lot of the last decade distancing himself from the game a little bit and sort of like sort of oh as opposed to all those other hobbies like dungeons and dragons or you know intense sports fandom or you know intense extreme religion or extreme sports right it's very common that you try to fill a hole in your soul with some intense endeavor and then you close the chapter and you move on that's not the only pursuit you need in life half apologizing penancing he did an interview with the atlantic in 2015 where he said obviously i was a journalist this community already existed and i went in to describe my experience of it but because no one had even heard of this world and the techniques let's face it are so objectifying and horrifying that the book became the bible of what it was trying to chronicle in a more neutral way he's, he's trying to be like i was just reporting right yeah and it's like bro you wrote a whole thing where you're like i'm having sex right now <laughs> 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 it's like come on man um not only that but a couple years later he follows it up look when i was reporting on the porn industry i was just reporting guys i mean if i retailed incidents about having sex with porn stars that was just classic participatory journalism in the george plimpton style just just a reporter just bringing you the news don't judge me bro with a book called the rules of the game right which is just like a straightforward pickup artist manual <laughs> 
<laughs> Let's get all this stuff about how all of these men are like emotional husks out of here. <laughs> get rid of the filler. I just want the tips. Right. And look, I, I get it, right? Like there's only so many chances to cash in in your life as, as a writer. Yeah. And you know, some publisher was like, Neil, I got a million dollars for you. Here you yeah, go, Neil. Yeah, yeah. So like maybe it's not quite an endorsement, but like at that point you have to, you have to admit I sold my soul for this shit, right? You right. can't, you can't try to walk the tightrope of I was just a journalist or whatever. Also, even if it was a journalistic account, I feel like the journalistic thing to do would be to actually follow up with some of these women. Right. Be like, right. oh yeah, you know, you, you went home with mystery last night. How do you feel about it afterwards? Like, do you feel tricked? Do you feel deceived or manipulated? Like I have friends who've fallen for this right? and they sort of, they wake up the next morning and they're like, that guy didn't need to feed his puppy. He just wanted to get me to his house or yeah. whatever. Like the, the manipulation, once you're sober, once it's the light of day, you're like, that was not a good faith, spontaneous hookup, right? It feels right. like theater. So like a journalist would actually tell those fucking stories, like really, really basic journalism. Like what is the cost of this? Yeah, but he was. So this gay guy is making the point that this wasn't a spontaneous good faith pickup, all right? Spontaneous good faith sexual pickups, you know, those are wonderful, ethical, even holy things. But unfortunately, what these heterosexuals are doing here is just so degrading and shameful. It's not the, the you know, spontaneous good faith pickups that uh, I've enjoyed, right? I, I get to have spontaneous good faith hookups, but uh, these nasty, yucky heterosexuals, just so degrading and filthy. Trying to tell the unspoken tale of the male, you know? <laughs> of how much sex the men were having. So what's the vibe? I mean, we've talked about this as we went, but is your general vibe... These guys are disgusting assholes or these guys are just pathetic losers. Or even there's a third way too. you. There's a much more sympathetic way, right? You can say like these guys are just trying to better themselves and it came out wrong. Yeah, I would say the third way. But empathy seems fairly limited to these commentators. These are broken men, just like you and me, trying to do the best they can, doing the best they can with what they have to meet their needs. That uh, people do things that make sense to them. Right? These, these weren't people who were born winners, raised winners. Right? These are broken people trying to navigate a painful life. It came out bad. I think all three are true. Yeah. It's impossible to ignore the misogyny at the heart of this. Mm -hmm. You're basically tricking women into going home with you. And right. you're doing this not for the benefit of the women in any way. You're basically doing this to seek status among men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that there's like a critique of the critique of this book that's like, oh, you think pickup artists are bad? Oh, I guess you think women shouldn't be having sex. Right, right, right. As a gay guy, I have had periods of my life where I go to bars and I hook up with people. And I also get on some level that, like, that's a fairly messy process. And, like, a little bit of help to, like, fake confidence or have a comfortable, fun conversation with a stranger, I actually think is fine. Like, on. Oh, it's a messy process, but was it a manipulative process? Was it a disease-ridden process? Was it an antisocial process? Was it a soul-destroying process? Right? You blokes who are critiquing the book don't display 1% of the honesty and vulnerability that Neil Strauss did in writing this book. You're just so smug and superior. Some level, it's okay to sort of help people get through these interactions, but also 
that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about bringing a fucking piece of lint with you to a club <laughs> and like putting it on somebody and taking it off of them to damage their self-esteem and make them vulnerable to you having sex with them so you can brag about it later. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I do think that you could potentially veer into being a little bit paternalistic, a little bit puritanical if you find yourself fretting that like, oh, these women are being manipulated into, into giving up their honor or something like that. Right, right. right. You're right. There's almost like a light and, and polite dishonesty that's part mm. of hookup dynamics, right? You puff yourself up a little bit. You might make yourself a little bit more. Okay. Notice the contempt that these two liberal left elites have for honor culture the concept of a woman having honor, concept of a man having honor. They have nothing but contempt for honor culture. If we had honor culture, we wouldn't have this horrible you know, pickup scene. You know, we wouldn't have this degrading, disease-ridden, promiscuity era. But these two hosts have nothing but contempt for honor culture, honor codes, honorable behavior interesting you know if someone if you're not into hiking and someone you're very attracted to says they love to hike you might be like yeah me too yeah peter i live in seattle i do this all the time yes. <laughs> um sure. yeah I, I think i was uh month six of my relationship with my now wife when she told me that she does not like to work out actually <laughs> but you know what makes the pickup artist strategies so gross is this like complete embrace of inauthenticity and the gamification of social interaction you know it just ensures that whatever relationships that's not what makes pickup artistry gross. If pickup artists did things with authenticity and they didn't gamify it, it wouldn't be any less gross. Right? These guys completely lack any traditional moral code. So that's not critiquing them because they don't pretend to have a traditional moral code. I subscribe to a traditional moral code, Orthodox Judaism. So there is no authentic ethical pickup artistry. There's no authentic ethical sexual promiscuity but for these guys who are critiquing the book there is authentic honest vulnerable and ethical pickup artistry and sexual promiscuity and i think that's absurd I, I subscribe to traditional notions of honor i subscribe to traditional notions that uh, sex should be reserved for heterosexual monogamous marriage But these guys think that, oh, if only pickup artistry was in sexual promiscuity, if only it was more authentic, if only it wasn't so gamified. In Sue, whether it's casual sex or something more, there's this wall of inauthenticity between you. You're just playing a game and the other person is the dehumanized object of the game. Right. So if there's more authenticity, less dehumanization, less objectification, it wouldn't be any more pro-social or ethical or decent. What a bizarre critique. And I think in a world where we are all constantly searching for human connection, there's something like particularly awful right. and sad about that. The whole idea of it is misogynistic to its core. Right. On the other hand, I do think that like there's a large... Yeah, it's sad. It's broken people trying to navigate through a very painful life for a life that is not currently working for them. And they're doing the best they can with the tools they have at their disposal. The reservoir of insecure dudes in society who like don't really know how to do this stuff and are desperate for intimacy. And we live in a culture that tells them that like, it's impossible to form intimacy with other men. Cause like that's gay, bro. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard not to have some sympathy for like the basic plight. Yeah. There's a lot of social pressure on men to have sex and to be cool, to be someone who women want to be with. And 
society views sex as like something men earn and women give up right. a dynamic that is like unhealthy for everyone involved and has caused untold strife from negging to wars <laughs> yeah oh so it's only our society who think that sex is something that men earn and women give up so other societies don't look at it the same way uh i think most societies look at it this way most societies understand that female chastity and virginity is to be protected and to be prized. And $2 super chat from the freak. Great broadcast. Thank you so much for your support of the show. And if you squint hard enough at this stuff, you can see this group of guys who maybe got like a raw deal banding together and trying to figure out how to work their way out of it. Mm-hmm. And it's almost nice. And it's just sort of unfortunate that the only angle they could figure out is latching on to like a mix of manipulation tactics and misogyny. It's a little bit like I sort of get the people. So pickup artistry isn't just manipulation techniques and misogyny. It's a whole lot more than that. Often it's just basic social skills. Where do the hosts get the ideas that this is the only thing that these guys are trying to improve their life? Like most of the men who dabble in pickup artistry are also trying exercise. They're probably trying religion. They're probably going to therapy. They're probably doing a whole host of things to improve their life. And this is just one thing, right? Pick up artists and those who follow them uh, are not just essentially PUAs at heart, right? They have all sorts of other pursuits, other interests, you know, other things that they're trying. Right? This this desire to just essentialize people as pathetic pickup artists or a pathetic racist or a pathetic misogynist is incredibly reductive, bro. People are more complicated than that who join like the proud boys or whatever on a purely subjective level it feels like an attack on you that like the world is changing and your position in society is less secure than it used to be on a human level i get it but also at the end of the day you join the fucking proud boys (laughs) you're a huge piece of shit for doing that (laughs) and i'm not i'm not going to retreat to being like oh but they did the piece of shit thing for good reasons okay but look at the destination where they ended up a lot of other people have these concerns and don't end up like tricking women into having sex right there's a difference between being like you know i i can see how these tendencies might develop and being like so it's okay that you joined the proud right. place right? <laughs> right no like you're you're a uh, a rational living human being yeah you need to be able to recognize when you're crossing those lines right when you're like i'm right. taking these frustrations why do we need to be declaring that this is morally right and wrong in, in judgment about you know everyone's life right? for some people joining the proud boys is a good move for other people it's a bad move it's individual it depends on circumstances it depends on which chapter of the Proud Boys, at which time, and in which place. People try different things to improve their lives, and some things they try work for them, and sometimes in some places, and then they start becoming maladaptive. So all sorts of things that we pick up and try are adaptive initially, and then very quickly become maladaptive. and I'm stepping into something awful and dangerous. As you place your black light into your fanny pack <laughs> at 10 p.m. and head out to the bar, you should you should have a little moment of reflection. <laughs> should we talk about incels? I was just, because you mentioned the Proud Boys, okay. and I was going to say, in a lot of ways, as gross as some of this stuff is, 
it feels really quaint. I know, right? When you oh. look at like modern incels. Oh I suppose male sexual frustration manifests differently in like every generation. Each has its own strategies and philosophy about it, like unique to the times. And yeah. the only thing they have in common is the steadfast refusal to envision women as uh, living, breathing human beings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I do think it's fascinating that that incels began as a reaction to the pickup artist right. community, right? That it was like PUA hate, pickup artist hate was the original incel subreddit. Yes. The whole premise was that pickup artists are telling you that you can change your lot. What really helped me to see the greater humanity of women was to join 12-step programs in which women were participants. When I would hear difficulties that women had with love and sex and relationships, it, it did make them a lot more human to me. I, I do have some misogynistic tendencies. I, I do have some hatred for women at times, like a I remember Holly Randall would tell me, take out all your hatred on women on me in the bedroom. So I had some complicated early relationships with women in my earliest, most vulnerable years. And uh, I was smacked around and physically knocked about quite a bit by some women in, in my childhood. And guess what? I formed a reaction to that that had a little bit of anger towards women. And I needed to get help for it. I needed to get therapy. I needed to get 12-step help. And uh, some of those unhealthy tendencies are still there under the surface. I don't have it all worked out. Right, that if, if you do this peacocking and negging and all this kind of stuff, you can score chicks. And then the incel response was like, no, it's never going to get better. Right. The pickup artists are saying like, look, we're dorks, but with some strategies, we can move up in the social right. pecking order. We can become cool dudes who get girls. And the incel generation is nihilistic, right? Yeah. They are like accepting that they're society's losers and instead of trying to break out of that they just dwell in their rage about it towards women and towards society yeah it's a sense of entitlement right it's like very yeah. literally they're they're saying like these guys are trying to give us these elaborate systems for hooking up with women why the fuck should we need that yeah, 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 like yeah. why do we have to do this right which by the way is like not the worst most unreasonable question <laughs> it's not an unreasonable question because men are entitled to sex it's more that like you're gazing out upon this like kind of bizarre social order that governs sex in our and relationships in our society and being like, what the fuck is all of this? And I do think yeah, that's yeah. kind of a normal reaction. <laughs> you know, you just have to take it to a healthy place. This is how I look out on like straight dating norms. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> this, this is like a fucking nature documentary to me. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, both of these groups are holding out their lack of sexual success as a grievance, but the incels believe that it's an injustice, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. their solution is not to improve themselves, to like develop some game or whatever, but to lash out violently. Yeah. So you have Elliot Roger who murders women um, because he's an incel mad that he didn't get laid, and he writes a fucking... 99.999% of incels don't lash out violently. That's such a horrible, nasty, vicious, demeaning unnecessary, superfluous, gratuitous slur against incels. There's nothing inherent in being an incel that uh, inherently connects with, you know, a violent criminal response. Almost no incels, very, 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 very few incels lash out violently. Manifesto about his, like, entitlement to sex. He says that he deserved sex because he was a descendant of British aristocracy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and it's like... It's just incoherent because they're grasping yeah. at, like, anything they can to, like, intellectual. And the chat says, look, are you fantasizing about being at a middle-class event with people like these hosts? Well, I would enjoy talking with them socially because they are smart. They are erudite. They are well-read. 
but uh, I'd like to think that I'm at level up on them in terms of what they're talking about. And we'll go into that in just a minute. Lies this anger they're feeling, right? right? They believe that they're owed sex and attention from women. And yeah, no need for self-improvement. All you do is just stew in your anger about not right. getting what you believe that you're owed. It's really bleak that we're at this point with like relations between the sexes and especially the crisis of, I think, like straight white dudes where it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'll, I'll take the raging misogynists because the other <laughs> option is fucking mass shooters. Oh, God. Yeah. It's where, you know, you, you look at something like negging and you're like, wow, that is just an awful way to look at like human communication. And then you look at the incels and you're like, actually, maybe it's okay. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Keep nagging, guys. You're uh, fine out there. Maybe we let them nag. I don't know. <laughs> the The only truth is that whatever solution men come up with for these problems, it will not be good for women. Yeah, uh, it's no just kidding. a matter of where on the spectrum it lands. Do you oh, yeah. This is all about, you know, how terrible things are for, for women. Okay, let's, let's go a level up on this discussion, right? That was, that was kind of pathetic because they're... Is there, say, a deeper way of understanding what's what's going on here? And I think there is, and I think it can be found in a great book by Ronnie Goodman on conservative oppression. So a key giveaway in that liberal critique was their disdain for honor. Because having honor and subscribing to an honor code is perhaps the best antidote to the degenerate world that they were describing. So there was the United States Supreme Court case, United States versus Virginia, which held that it was unconstitutional for the Virginia Military Institute to exclude women. Well, maintaining men-only spaces is one of the healthiest things you can do for society. Men need spaces where they can just be with men and have an honor code. So just as Antonin Scalia wrote in his objection to the U.S. Supreme Court ruling, it is precisely the Virginia Military Institute's attachment to such old-fashioned concepts as manly honor that has made it and the system it represents the target of those who today succeed in abolishing public single-sex education. So writing for the court, for the court, Justice Ginsburg assumed the posture of the hard-nosed technocrat, painstakingly scrutinizing the facts before her, asking how much evidence is required to prove that women cannot adapt to a BMI education. Let's go a level up here. Justice Scalia says, the narrow terms of equal protection review conceal the true stakes, and its civil rights legislation from the 1960s now being extended to male-female relationships is just destroying freedom of association. Uh, those who push to overturn BMI's historical traditions are not primarily aiming at uprooting irrational preconceptions about women's capabilities. Right? Their primary agenda is social engineering. They want to discredit the whole idea of honor codes. They want to discredit an ideal that they despise as archaic and benighted, just like liberals despise conservatives as medieval and archaic and benighted. So this whole concept of manly honor, which would be the solution to many of the problems that we've been talking about the previous two hours, right, is simply incompatible with this liberal left hygienic conception of life. Right? Traditionalists are more at ease that human beings are not basically good, are not basically hygienic, that we're not basically buffered, meaning that there is like this protective you know, coating between us and others 
so that we're not affected by you know other people's sexual choices. We understand life is messy; it's not hygienic. So liberals say, "Oh, we don't believe in manly honor because it's sexist and inequitable." But what they're really trying to do is impose upon us their particular partisan cultural ethos. Right? It is male individuality; it is male exuberance, male aggressiveness. That, from a liberal left perspective, like those two blokes we just heard, must stringently be curbed and disciplined to meet the requirements of bureaucratic success. So, bureaucracies are more hospitable to the effete, androgynous males who fit the feminist mold of manhood. Right? We just had a podcast with two effete, androgynous males. Right? And they work very effectively within bureaucracies because they fit the feminist mold of manhood. So liberals loathe and disdain manly honor, not because of gender equality, but by virtue of their primordial attraction to the disciplined, conformist, institutional, hygienic ethos. Right? This hygienic conception of life cannot tolerate male individuality, male exuberance, male aggressiveness. They condemn this as dangerous, primitive atavisms that threaten our. Rational hygienic social order. So, equal protection review is merely the ideological facade behind which liberalism targets traditional values such as male honor. So, conservative claims of cultural oppression see the political emerging out of the ostensibly apolitical equal protection. So, the liberal elites contrapose equality to inequality. But traditionalists see a contest between the elite, supposedly higher civilization or hygienic civilization, and conception of the self, and the half-savage relics of past times, meaning conservatives, traditionalists. So, when we go a level up here, we see the selectivity with which feminist principles are applied. So, Laura Ingram notes that when a global rap superstar can get away. With carrying out a simulated rape of a young woman on the stage, such shenanigans would have provoked a deafening outcry from elites had they been performed by American soldiers stationed in Iraq or Afghanistan. That liberals assess social ills against the backdrop of their own parochial partisan tastes and sensibilities, and when the military say rejects these tastes and sensibilities, right, liberals will condemn. Manly honor, honor codes, violence, and sexism, right, is just uniquely nefarious and brutishly animal. But when liberal tastes and sensibilities are affirmed, such as by multicultural black rappers, then、uh, liberal criticism will be much more nuanced and sophisticated, with numerous concessions granted to the requirements of artistic license and、uh, multi-layered irony. So the liberal agenda cloaks itself in these moral abstractions. But they are selectively applied to discredit the morality, the worldview, the ethos of ordinary Americans, because the ethos of ordinary Americans are an affront to our liberal elites. So there was this、uh, Democratic fundraiser. In Chelsea, in New York, one comic attacked President Bush as this piece of living, breathing shit. Others took to savaging Vice President Dick Cheney's family, calling his lesbian daughter a big lesbian. Yet the media gave this outrage a free pass. Why? 
Republicans. It's like an Upper West Side Manhattan left-wing Ku Klux Klan mentality. Some Southern redneck talk like this about a liberal, everyone would denounce it, but because it's Upper West Side humor, Manhattan's it's supposed to be chic. So enjoying this Upper West Side privilege, liberal comics can issue mock death threats against prominent conservatives. Expect everyone to take this in stride. So you can have liberals celebrating violence where it appears in movies promoting liberal or avant-garde values such as Pulp Fiction, Natural Born Killers, or Kill Bill. But they deplore violence when it appears in a movie that promotes traditional religious faith such as Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. So as with nationalism, the issue is never violence as such. It's all about the cultural sensibilities it serves to validate. When these sensibilities are traditionalist, such as notions of manly honor, right? the violence is deplored as purient and sadomasochistic. So Michael Savage was summarily fired from his job at MSNBC after he lost his temper and reacted to a vicious personal attack made by a crank caller by telling the caller to get AIDS and die. But NPR's Nina Totenberg could respond to Senator Jesse Helms' efforts to defund AIDS research with, I think he ought to be worried about what's going on in the good Lord's mind, because if there is retributive justice, he will get AIDS from a transfusion, or one of his grandchildren will get it. Nina Totenberg at NPR was not fired. Why this double standard? Because Nina Totenberg enjoys class privilege as a liberal elite. So let me play a little bit here. Oh my God, I don't, I don't have my place. How irresponsible of me. So I'll play some Bob Wright, Mickey Kaus predictions. Oh, where should we begin? We, we had agreed that we were each going to... I do have eight predictions. You have eight predictions? You got to save some for the parrot room, man. We don't have... Oh, that reminds you, I forgot to start the timer. I'm going to do that now. We we Mickey, you got to exercise some discipline, man. Okay, I'll I'll do I'll. Okay, I found my place. Decoding the Guru interview with Copy Zilla, the YouTube investigator Copy Zilla, talking about Sam Bankman Freed, crypto scams, NFTs, and influencer guru dynamics. People, the like online figures or celebrities or or like CEOs talking, the way that they talk is really, really similar to the gurus that we cover. And like when they're asked direct questions, their tendency to, you know, kind of be able to just fluff around, like it kind of almost like dancing, waving their yeah. hands. And yeah. they're using technical terms, but it's the exact same as like when Eric Weinstein is using uh, like mathematical terms or Jordan Peterson is using psychology terms. So in that point, it seems to me that like, a lot of it is rhetoric, and the the one that is coming to mind is um I was watching one of your investigations the um what is it moonbase was the safe moon safe moon safe moon yes, and uh the I think it was the papa character was yeah. talking about evolution some something as an evolution, and the description was just it might it was pure sense maker gobbledygook there was nothing there but it just sounded like you know the the dream and it referenced you know like kind of visionary terms and technologies and stuff so that to me seemed that on rhetoric aspects there's a there's a lot of overlap with your kind of classical guru 
figures or even, you know, cult leader types? Yeah, I, didn't, I, I think it's really interesting how you don't actually have to be that sophisticated to appear sophisticated to the um, unfamiliar, the uninitiated, I guess you would say. I mean, you could absolutely not know what you're talking about, about like in the case of crypto, especially. And, and you can just blast people with jargon and uh, just blow them away with nothing, with absolutely nothing insightful to say. Um, and I think that's what's been interesting is what. Hey, come on. I'm trying to run a high quality podcast here. The, these long breaks are so awkward. We just get, just get him to stop. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, sorry for the media. I guess one thing I have to ask you guys, what do you think about how it appears to me like guru figures have figured out ways to capture? Okay, here's the, how it's done. Michael Jackson reunion concert, you know, the family reunion, the Jackson family honors concert yeah. was held in Las Vegas this past weekend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There were people who paid as much as a thousand dollars to see the concert, and they uh, were cheering Michael Jackson when they first saw him. Yeah. Who are those people that cheer Michael Jackson after yeah, all these allegations? Yeah, the Nambla meeting. Yeah, have more respect. <laughs> Congratulations on your miraculous career. Right. We are behind you. We're behind you because we don't want to be in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> who would cheer, like? Who would want to be? Yeah. Who would want to be seen cheering Michael Jackson? What are you cheering exactly? He's a if he was on Oprah Winfrey and he was some white trash guy who came out there and said uh, he had, uh, you know. Came out in disguise. Yeah, right. He said that he was, you know, he wanted to have sleepovers with young kids because he didn't have a childhood. But do you think he'd be cheering? <laughs> you know what? I believe that was a full audience of childless people. People who were told they can't have children who were cheering him. Well, they turned on him in mid uh concert because they then discovered it was true that he was not going to sing by himself so then they started booing him no oh not because of the allegations no just because uh he wouldn't sing for them i heard there were a whole new set of allegations against him i've been you know it keeps coming up if he paid 20 million dollars to make this stuff go away it wasn't enough yeah i wish he molested me <laughs> i swear it'd be worth it 20 million uh, yeah, I was going to say, I'll sleep over. <laughs> With this thinking it, job. It won't even cost you that much. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they say that they don't know if NBC is going to edit out the booze. The uh, show airs tonight. You'll see Janet oh, opening the show, but she doesn't stay for the whole evening. They had free booze. And then you'll have to listen to his other brothers, who you never wanted to hear sing anyway. Sing. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a whole show of people you don't want to hear, except for Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson. <laughs> yeah, and she's just there for the opening, and then she's out of there. Oh, when they my. have the whole big family reunion at the end of the show, Michael sings one little verse in a song with all of Okay, let's go deeper here, back to Bunny Goodman's great book on conservative claims of cultural oppression. So... The secular, morally libertarian culture pushed by liberal elites unfairly advantages, advantages them at the expense of those who can at least do without the traditional morality and religion of which these elites would deprive them. So Robert Bork warned us, persons capable of high achievement in one field or another may find meaning in work. They may find community among colleagues. They may not particularly mind social and moral separation. 
Such people are unlikely to need the more sordid distractions that popular culture now offers. But large segments of the population do not fall into that category. For them, the drives of liberalism are catastrophic. And I remember reading Adam Smith's 1776 classic, The Wealth of Nations, where he makes the point that there are many vices that the middle and upper classes can indulge in with very little negative effect. It would be absolutely ruinous to someone of the lower classes who will usually lack the intelligence and the resources of someone from the middle and upper classes. So the liberal libertine vision is advanced by those whose professional stature provides their lives with meaning and coherence, right? Most people have to get their meaning and coherence from wider society, not from their profession, right? So their lives, the liberal elite, have lives of meaning and coherence from their professional stature, but the liberal vision that they are advancing assaults the traditional values that undermine lives for the silent majority, right? The, the majority are left more susceptible to debilitating social ills that the elites are privileged to avoid by virtue of their high IQs, high discipline, and large number of resources. Sam Beckman fried has parents who put hundreds of thousands of dollars together for his criminal defense. So, a tenured radical rails against the repressiveness of bourgeois norms from within the safe confines of the ivory tower. No great consequence for him. But it is a far greater moment when the less privileged and the underclass absorb these adversarial attitudes towards traditional morality and abandon the only values that will save them from a life of crime, drug addiction, illegitimacy, dislocation, disruption, disaster. If conservatives are critical of the underclass's moral habits, this reflects not racism or any other prejudice, but that liberalism has inflicted the greatest damage to those who are most vulnerable. Right? A white suburban teenager can indulge in delinquency with relative impunity, such as listening to rap music, but that same level of delinquency will be literally fatal to a black inner-city teenager. Right. Today's secular royalty of Hollywood liberals, right, they can engage in Dionysian excess. But they feel compelled to export their values, not just to the very rich and the very admired. Right? They feel compelled to export their values to those who are most vulnerable. Madonna urges her followers to cast off their bourgeois sexual hangouts. But Madonna can then settle down with her husband and kids when she's outgrown her hedonism. But the lower middle class girls from Jersey City who took her advice were not so lucky. So conservatives see liberal elites having a vested interest in perpetuating the cultural pathologies of the underclass. Many members of the black underclass have become essentially the mascots of left intellectuals. And the less real agenda is to score points against American society by exploiting the underclass as a counter-cultural symbol of resistance to hegemony. So the new class that reigns within the media, the academy, the professions, and the government is a mirror image of and has a symbiotic relationship with the underclass, which is used to symbolize the new class's embrace of avant-garde values. So the secular progressive crowd, especially the mainstream media, glorifies the gangster rap world, makes money from it. These white, middle-class, middle-aged, ponytail music executives are essentially no better than crack dealers. They know their product damages destroys, dehumanizes their customer, and they encourage this awful behavior. So liberals want to trace the plight of the poor to racism, the excesses of capitalism, callousness of conservatives, 
but those of us on the right trace this decline to the cultural ambitions and excesses of the reigning liberal elites. Liberals think that they are tolerant, but this tolerance is a disingenuous facade. It is just another liberal ruse. Moral relativism and subjectivism are not the transcendence of ideology, which liberal narrative tries to tell us, but on the contrary, they are ideological weapons through which to disguise the injuries which the people of fashion would inflict on the common people. So the common people's moral degradation augments the political and cultural capital of the left, no less than the vast armies of low-wage workers augment the profits of the industrialists. So this degradation is simply the currency of liberal ambition. It's merely another way for the anointed to set themselves against the benighted and the morally traditional. Let's play a little bit more here from Getting the Guru's conversation with Copyzilla. For media, um, in a way that they're very often not criticized by anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should say, we talk about very different figures. I don't know much about uh, Eric or, or Jordan, but mm. uh, well, actually, besides the fact that my 3D artist hates Jordan Peterson, that's yeah. like all I know is like he despises Jordan Peterson. But um, but besides that, but I but I have found that generally these people are very mainstream, ap- appealable until they're exactly not, till they're anathema. But hmm. until then, they're very loved. Yeah. Well, actually, I was watching your coverage of Andrew Tate, and I think you made a point that applies perfectly well to a lot of the characters we look at, which is that these people, one way or another, stumble upon a recipe for attracting attention and then once they have the spotlight on them they can then use that to promote themselves more and the attention gathering stuff is usually something terribly controversial and gets a lot of um, polarized opinion on both sides and then once they have the floor they can then speak to stuff that indicates their access to, to to secret or not secret but but deep and meaningful information that that people could benefit from. Sometimes it's very bland and boring, like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life is a very bland and boring uh, self-help book sure. to a large degree, a little bit like you were saying about Andrew Tate's training courses. It's just bog standard. Yeah, a lot of the things that are most important to implement into your life are bland and boring, right? The things that are compelling and exciting, right? Usually not so profound, not so wise, and not so good for you to implement. So clean your room is usually very good advice. It is bland. It's boring. It also may need a little bit of repetition. It may be just what uh, some troubled young men need. Um, yeah, you don't even know how to judge it. You're like, what am I like? Uh, Jordan Peterson and his idea of 12 rules for life and clean your room. Much better advice for young men than the pickup artist scene on one side or the incel scene on the other. And like, I, I know in the case of, well, I know, okay, I, I don't know nothing about Jordan Peterson. I know he's like clean your room guy. Like you can't say no to that. You're like, all, all right, yeah, sure. I, I don't know if this is one of the rules to life if you had to pick 12, but okay, like clean your room. Okay, that's fine, <laughs> I guess. Mm. Um, it's it's almost so milk toast that it's uncriticizable. That's yeah. what's so strange about it. But, but then they'll throw in some like wild stuff. I mean, that was like the thing with Tate. He would say something that sounds reasonably plausible. And then he's like, yeah, men should cheat women aren't allowed to and you're like whoa 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 whoa, whoa. wait 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 wait. where did we how did we get here yeah you didn't you know it's very strange uh but people will look at the reasonable stuff and they'll go well he's pretty normal guy like 
what are you talking about? Why do you disagree? You should make your bet. Yeah. You're like, yeah, I think a lot of our gurus play the same Martin Bailey um, uh, technique. Um, But I mean, perhaps a figure that sits somewhere in between both worlds is Elon Musk. I I hadn't thought about Elon. You know, I would actually love to hear y'all's thoughts about this. Actually, (laughs) actually, I'm fascinated by Elon Musk because. Yeah, Elon Musk is an interesting figure like uh, Donald Trump. He combines some great accomplishments with a breathtaking uh, ability to to lie with, with seemingly uh, no conscience about it. The you know uh, like CEO has can give them the guide to navigate that. That's like a really powerful narrative that it's and it, it you know and there's lots of occasions where. That is also a narrative that applies in an actual thing where there are people with expertise and they teach you how to do something I was about to, better. I was about to bring that up too. Like, yeah, the, the, what's so challenging is that sometimes there is that like thing. I mean, I like I play jazz piano and it's incredibly complicated. Like the music theory behind it is very complicated. And usually I'm like, I'll get confused. And at one point, because I taught myself how to play, but eventually I got a professor at a local community college to give me private lessons. And it's like opening a door. It's like he knew all this stuff that really kind of was like locked away knowledge. It wasn't, um, you know, I had read books about it, but it was like something about having a guy sit there and kind of explain it was really helpful. Um, but yeah, so, yeah, so th- this is the hard thing about grifters is usually what makes them so successful is they're pulling on something which is like real usually. They're, or they're, they're, they're drawing power from something that is true, like uh, the Andrew Tate figure. He's talking about, oh, the world's messed up. Yeah, from a certain perspective, the world is messed up. Like you can draw a lot of power from that narrative. You can draw a lot of power from the narrative. Oh, you know, as men, you haven't been spoken to. I think that's like probably a Jordan Peterson narrative too, right? Like, you know, disaffected young men. You feel lost. You feel like you don't have a strong role model in your life. Yeah, this is a powerful narrative. And then just kind of comes everything else. It's like then they sell you something on the side. Yeah. Hmm. The anti-establishment, uh, like pose is, is also really powerful. And, you know, in, in your interview with Lex, I heard you talk about the fact that, you know, people are, were rightly, uh, like disenchanted with the traditional financial systems, right? Because they saw what happened with the Wall Street collapse and all of those, uh, the, all of the various systems and, and Ponzi schemes and so on that go on. So institutions, and, and traditional. Yeah, this is a good point. Our institutions are flawed. Our financial system is flawed. The way the government runs the economy is flawed. That doesn't mean the crypto is the answer. And there was earlier a reference to Mott and Bailey. It's an argument technique where you you say that you you know believe in something that's eminently defensible, right? So you just say the defensible part of your argument and try to hide and disguise the much more vulnerable and less defensible part of your argument. So this is a little excerpt from Kerning the Guru's talking to Coffeezilla. Financial systems did seem to be screwing people over. And it's it's not an unwarranted conclusion to draw that like decentralized uh, currencies which are not tied to like banks and governments would be would be better and, and could be this emancipatory force. And that's what in part makes it so much worse. <laughs> they, they they then go on to screw the exact same people 
in a like a new way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always a, there's always a boot. Unfortunately, um, some people just wanted to be the new boot. The people who were really smart wanted to be the new boot. Some people thought it would get rid of the boot altogether. Um, yeah, I I think that's I think that's fascinating. We um, there was a there was a point that I just wanted to talk about. Um, what were you saying right before the crypt? And uh, repeat a question in the chat. What did Jordan Peterson say that was patently indefensible? You'll have to check out some of their previous episodes focusing on Jordan Peterson uh, because I've never taken Jordan Peterson that seriously. I haven't you know, committed to memory the stupid things that he said. I haven't never cared enough about Jordan Peterson to try to you know, note down or, or remember the stupid things that he said. But uh, Decoding the Gurus have done a couple of episodes on him. It's pretty cogent analysis. Dose stuff. Oh, about establishment figures. I'm dying to talk about this. So I read this book called like The Death of Expertise by Tom Nichols, I think. Um, a good book. But it basically talks about how people are increasingly losing trust in um, like trusted systems. And it's kind of like generic on purpose. That could be the NIH, the, the health system. There's we have more information than we've had ever before. And so it's the information explosion that makes us less trusting of our major institutions. All this disagreement about like, are these people lying to us? And never before in my life had there been like these big questions. Um, what do you think is causing that? Do you think that is like a largely a social media emergent phenomenon? Or do you think, what do you think it is? Yeah, I think... Yeah, that's a, a real thing that's going on. The death of expertise is is linked strongly to the uh, conspiracism and the anti-establishment stuff that Chris was talking about. Those things go together. Um, so you'll see otherwise relatively normal people sort of say in a cavalier way that all... Yeah, it seems to me that John Peterson has a more positive influence on people than a negative one. That's what it seems like to me. Also... Jordan Peterson shares you know, much of my right-wing politics, so I'm obviously going to be more favorable to him. I do respect the Decoding the Guru's analyses of Jordan Peterson. I think they make some pretty fair points, even though I cannot remember them. All of our ologists out there and all the universities are, are corrupted by the perverse incentives, and they, they, they can't say what they really think. Um, when it's just so clearly implausible, it requires a conspiratorial frame of mind to believe that. People have certainly. And Half Deletion says Jordan Peterson cannot have a good influence if he is a liar and a fraud and never held to account. Well, all of us lie. All of us are fraudulent in some things. Uh, all of us get away with things that we would, we should be criticized for. So I don't think liar or fraud are accurate terms for Jordan Peterson. I would say he's a human being. He certainly. Uh, talks too much, too carelessly, too irresponsibly, and like it's, it's gone down some unfortunate paths. Uh, but I don't think you can just dismiss Jordan Peterson as a liar and a, and a fraud. But uh, I just don't know enough about him. I'm just going to suspect that he's a more complicated figure than either his supporters or detractors would say. Half Galician says, Luke, you do this equivocation. You know I'm talking about legal definition of fraud, his meat diet scam. 
So I know he went on an all-meat diet. And so what? That you're claiming that because he went on an all-meat diet, that is that meets the legal definition of committing fraud, then why hasn't he been charged? He certainly has many enemies. If he met the legal definitions of fraud by going on an all-meat diet, then you know, why hasn't he been charged with fraud? Now, his daughter seems to be you know, retailing more scammy things than Jordan Peterson does. I don't think Jordan Peterson is primarily motivated by money. I don't think he's you know, primarily just trying to rip people off and uh, you know, peddle uh, you know, NFTs to people. Right? Jordan Peterson hasn't released his own cryptocurrency or NFTs. He lied about his all-meat diet. That, that's, that does not meet the legal definition of fraud. I don't know how he lied. You're really on an interesting journey of religion. We always been conspiratorial and probably people have already always, you know, had um, raised eyebrows at authority figures. But I guess, I don't know, this is just pure. Okay, so Half Galician is coming into my chat day in and day out to denounce me as ridiculous. So press one if 40 is ridiculous. Press two if Half Galician is ridiculous. Press three if we're both ridiculous. Okay, he claimed he only ate meat for a year. And maybe he only ate, what, 60% meat. Uh, so what? I, I don't see how that's uh, particularly serious. He made, you know, unscientific claims for his uh, all-meat diet. Okay. Doesn't seem like uh, the most important thing about it. He does not seem a well-balanced person to me. He seems to be a deeply troubled person. And I think an all-meat diet is probably an unhealthy diet, if that's what you're wondering. Opinion. This is not really well-informed at all, but... I guess the sense that I get is that in society generally, since say like the 1950s, that there has been a general... And Huff Galician says, Jordan Peterson lied about being addicted to benzodiazepines. How do you know he lied about that? Addiction is not an objective state, right? It's a subjective state that uh, a person diagnoses himself. So what evidence do you have that he was not addicted to benzodiazepines? He lied about why he left the country for treatment. Where was the lie? He was treated overseas, and he said he was treated overseas. He lied about not knowing benzos are addictive. How do you know he lied about that? You can say, oh, he should have known that they are capable of being addictive, but uh, not, not keeping that in your consciousness and... Uh, uh, kind of ignoring something that should be obvious to him. Yeah, that benzodiazepines can be addictive. It, it doesn't strike me as a lie. It just strikes me as a, a giant blind spot. I think he's he's deeply troubled and made a lot of bizarre choices. Look, this is not a court of law. Okay, so you're saying you're using the legal definition, right? You're pounding me that you are using the legal definition of fraud. 40. Why don't you understand I'm using the legal definition of fraud? So I accept the legal definition of fraud and ask you to back up how Jordan Peterson is meeting your self-chosen legal definition of fraud. Your response is, 40, this is not a court of law. You are all over the place. 
which is wonderful for the show. So please continue to be you. I guess equalizing and a democratization. So, so we don't necessarily look up and respect to, if you live in a small town, the, the, the school teacher and the policeman, and the judge or whatever, you know, um, for various reasons, you know, and for some of them are good reasons. So a lot of these people or institutions have shown in some respects to have uh, feet of clay. Okay, Half Galician says, you're doing your special pleading because you cannot concede when you are wrong. So I'm working in the YouTube live streaming genre. Uh, I think from the genre I'm working in, I'm probably more willing more often than most to concede when I am wrong. It's a character flaw on your part. I'm out. Bye. Okay, if you can't, uh, if you can't respond to the points I made, I understand why you'd want to run away. Yeah, half Galician, with each new comment, you come across as increasingly self-righteous, simplistic, hyper-moralistic. I have no idea what the hell has happened to half Galician over the past uh, six months. It's an increasingly bizarre, hyperbolic uh, denunciation jihad that he's on, but it's certainly highly compelling. Um but that's that's a real thing on over on top of the social media effects, which just allows people to share their conspiracism and to to focus on the stories that make institutions look bad. I think it's quite interesting that if you look at American politics at the moment, it's quite different in where Chris is and where I am. But it does it's interesting to me in telling that it's like both sides of politics. Like you can have the you can have extremely obviously the right wing Trumpian type QAnon people think the entire system. Right is 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 corrupt, but if right. you look at the bleeding edge of of left wing online discourse, in a way, it's not so similar. Never go, Paul Harkovician. <laughs> that is funny. Never go, Paul Harkovician. That's good. But I have no time for people to say, "Oh, the entire American system is corrupt." Like compared to what? In any human endeavor, there's going to be considerable corruption. So is the American system filled with corruption? Yes, it's filled with corruption. But compared to other systems, which ones do you think are superior to the American system? Do you think North Korea, Nigeria? Which which system do you honestly think is significantly less corrupt than the American system? Now, there are many ways where the Australian system is less corrupt than the American system. But uh, there are also many ways where the American system is more efficient and more powerful than the Australian system. And Colin Liddell has joined the show. Colin, good to see you. Colin Liddell, the the voice of of sanity. (laughs) I remember one of my my favorite Colin Liddell's... uh, comments about me is sometimes I think Luke Ford is the last sane man on the internet but then I remember he's an Aussie bro live action role playing laughing as as a Jew that's pretty good right they would they would say the entire thing they are similar yeah so yeah yeah. Um, you said not so similar but you meant similar I meant so not so so dissimilar is what I meant yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you know, I feel like it's a real thing that's going on, but that's just a- you can't do a live stream without constantly misstating things, forgetting words, saying the exact opposite of what you mean. 
uh, getting passionate about something that you don't know enough about, you know, getting things wrong. This is a spontaneous medium that, uh, that, that places the host and its participants in a situation where they're constantly going to be making mistakes, misstating things, exaggerating things, getting some facts wrong. Gut feeling, I suppose. Yeah. It, yeah, it has to do. I'm sorry, Chris, go ahead. No, no, no. I, uh, uh, my, my thought is still formulating. So, uh, please. Carla Liddell says, I'm taking a break from the wall to wall anti-Semitism on the millennials and the Quranials. <laughs> yeah. So every group benefits from accurate criticism. No group should be held above criticism of a group. And this includes Jews and gays and the transsexuals, and blacks, and Mexican-Americans, like, we all benefit from accurate criticism. But uh, some on the distant side of politics you know, look at the lacunae, the, the great gaps in you know, accurate criticism of sacred protected groups and go a little overboard with their, their criticism. So... I think many dissident riot criticisms of Jews are accurate and profound, and many are absurd and idiotic. But Jews, like any other group, should not be exempt from criticism. Criticism, when it's accurate, makes us better and reduces tension between peoples. It's still percolating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what that is. I mean, yeah, it has to do something with people being able to I think Google stuff really quickly, it gives the appearance that all knowledge is grasped immediately, like that you don't have to work for it. There's no kind of knowledge behind a degree. You can just look up a study as easily as a doctor can look up a study. So you just assume like, well, yeah, I could do my research just as much as this doctor could. And there's just this appearance that if I can, if I can almost, I can basically read an academic study, well, then I must be on sort of equal footing. And also, so that combined with the fact that it's always the most negative, horrible stories that go viral, you'll never hear like, oh, the... Remember when Joe Rogan talked about his knowledge of COVID and says he's got a whole PDF on his phone that he's been exhaustively studying all these you know, different academic papers about COVID and he, he's got a protocol and you know, he sends this nurse and this doctor out to his friends with COVID and he's just really got a handle on the COVID. That's what I'm thinking about here. The FBI did their job today. It's like the FBI did something terrible or our health officials did something terrible. Um, and I think that's really bad. I think you do always have to admit for the sake of just being fair to the conspiracy people, the our officials have sometimes made some horrible miscalculations to lie to the public, thinking that it would just... Yeah, a lot of officials and people in places of responsibility lie to the public for a good cause, right? And it uh, usually doesn't work out so well. So I don't think lying to the public for a good cause is generally a good idea. But uh, Sandpaper Gate, so three Australian cricket players, including David Warner and their cricket captain at the time, Steve Smith, were in South Africa, and they were convicted along with a bowler of... Uh, him using sandpaper to sand the ball so that the the bowlers could get more seam and direction and movement 
uh, of the ball on the pitch. And then the Australian Cricket Board claimed they did an independent investigation. It was only those three players who did wrong. But there's good reason to believe that many more people knew, including people in authority in Australian cricket, and that Australian cricket players have been cheating for years in this exact manner. They just won a test match series the, the year before against England, where people were noting the amazing uh, turn and, and seam uh, movement that uh, Australia's bowlers were able to get because in all likelihood they were cheating and you know, using sandpaper and other illegal tactics to manipulate the ball. So inevitably we're going to find out that cheating is endemic to the Australian cricket team and that it is being approved of by its managers, its leading officials. So keep an eye out the sandpaper gate coming soon to a theatre near you. Be swept under the rug. And what I find so interesting about events like this is that oftentimes they are swept under the rug, but they have this corrosive long-term cost on the public trust that is not immediately obvious, um, which in the long term is very hard. So you, you make these short-term optics calls. Yeah, the destruction of public trust has a great deal to do with tactics and rhetoric and decisions made by elites, the destruction of freedom of association, the mass importation of diversity, which means we have less in common with each other, so we are less trusting. Right? The reason that ordinary people increasingly distrust their institutions is not just that you know, the ordinary people are stupid and idiotic and would rather believe in bizarre conspiracy theories, but we've had a lot of mismanagement by people in charge who have earned additional skepticism. Which like sound right immediately, and then long-term you pay for really badly. Mm. Mm. That's There's, my thought. Matt, did you want to say I have something, but if you wanted to follow up, yeah, I think you'll probably talk to um, some of those. Yeah, the issues with um, yeah institutions and authority uh, figures, you know, do, making own goals essentially to um, decrease trust. I was just thinking in terms of like the bigger scope of it, which is if you look at the arc of. Um, okay, so the chat said that Australia's cricket players better come up with a good dance, better than the soccer dance tribute to the Aborigines or the like, the New Zealand uh, rugby union team. Uh, tribute to the Maoris. But did you guys see that uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode where one of the leading characters came out as gay and he did it in an interpretive dance to his father? I, I mean, I'm hearing from people who had tears in their eyes. They, they were so moved by, by that uh, episode. But anyway, if you'd like to come on the stream and turn on your camera and do an interpretive dance then the floor is wide open. This is a place of radical love and inclusion. Global history. It, it has been an arc towards increasing democratization and, and increasing sort of axiomatic respect for authority figures. I mean, we literally were ruled by kings and queens who said that they had a mandate from heaven. And there was just no questioning that. Um, so in, in many ways, it's a good thing, right? It's like the flip side of, of what is essentially a good thing, which is a, a democratic culture, which is, hey, I can, I can get in there. I can learn about how ivermectin works or how vaccines work. Um, I can, um, you know, everyone gets a chance, gets a voice. Um, so the internet facilitates it. The technology facilitates it. But we also have a, an egalitarian 
democratic culture, I suppose, which is a good thing, but has an Achilles heel. Yeah, I guess what I want to say is a supplement to that, because I think one thing that like uh, people who research conspiracy communities and, and like uh, cults have started to talk about the proliferation of leaderless cults or or kind of low cost membership cults. Whereas before, you know, cults could have powerful control over people and they had totalizing. That is a great, important point. Low cost membership cults, right? Every in-group has, you know, cultic elements. And now there are all sorts of cults that you can join with very low cost. You can go to Kundalini Yoga. You can attend Luke Ford live streams. You can join, you know, a, a dissident synagogue or, or church. There are now all these low cost cults that uh, are easily available. So yeah, Kanye West gone completely silent the past three weeks and uh, Colin Liddell, I think, caught it straight. He was having a, a, a manic alcohol-fueled uh, drug-induced episode and uh, now Kanye appears to have gone silent as he sobers up after doing a billion dollars worth of damage to himself. Ideologies, a charismatic guru figures, there was always the limitation that like, how do you, how do you join a cult? You got to go somewhere, and you know you've got to cut off contact with family, and uh, you, you've got to like kind of make these quite strong commitments. So there was always limitations, and sure, you could recruit a lot of people for certain cults, and the, you know the barrier between religion and cult, whatever. But now that's not the case, right? Now it's very, very easy for people to surf between gurus and between communities online. And the cost mm. is often just the cost of watching their YouTube video or, you know, or maybe joining a Patreon or, or something like that. And that, that is resulting in like a different dynamic, but a lot of the same forces like applying to people's psychology. And I also think in my lifetime that, I was always interested in conspiracism and like uh, kind of pseudoscientific communities. And that used to be this fringe topic that, you know, HIV, AIDS, denialism was a thing. But really, most normally people would never come across it. And there were some counterexamples, like the South African government, the health minister became convinced in it, and it had terrible consequences. But it wasn't something you would hear most mainstream politicians talk about. And that's completely changed, especially with COVID. Now, you know, it, Donald Trump is an obvious example, but now conspiracism is just everywhere. And it, it's, it's so depressing because it does make, you know, the kind of thing that Matt and me are interested in more relevant. Uh, you know, you could, you could offer take some things, but the downside we is that, that we really wish. It okay. So I'm trying to find a good Aboriginal restaurant. I just put in uh, Aboriginal Restaurant Sydney and the Lily Pad Cafe, right? There's an Aboriginal theme with bush tucker food. So there's no Aboriginal food at the Aboriginal Restaurant. Wow, there's a National Indigenous Culinary Institute Limited in Sydney. Uh, no reviews. Then there is Biri Biri Restaurant, right? That sounds nice. I wonder what kind of Aboriginal food they serve at uh, Biri Biri in Redfern. Great staff, community feeling. I love their chips and gravy. Uh, a chips and gravy 
traditional Aboriginal grub. I'm excited to come back for the vegetarian breakfast. Best burgers and chips in Redfern. Wait, I'm looking for an Aboriginal restaurant. You're telling me in Australia's biggest city, there aren't even any Aboriginal restaurants? I wanted to go to a good old-fashioned Indigenous Aboriginal restaurant, and I can't find one. Why can't we find a restaurant with with good, you know, old-fashioned Aboriginal food? This is a shanda. Why why is white white racism limited, made illegal, discouraged? Aboriginal restaurants, so sad. In the beginning, and so much attention and focus on sanctions, which really haven't been much of the help so much as American military aid. So I think that those are kind of the major questions that get sorted out here. And the Ukrainians need to take the lead on this. So we should be grateful to them that they are pushing back against someone that, if he were allowed to run rampant, uh, other places would also be on his radar screen. No, the Ukrainians do deserve a lot of credit for what's going on here. They have shown tremendous fight. But the reason why statesmen are important are because two reasons. One, the American taxpayer is spending so much money to help out Ukraine. And then also Russia has 6,500 nuclear warheads. So that means mm-hmm. that a conventional defeat is not within the <laughs> it's not within the options. And so that's why it's important for really smart thinkers to think about a way where we can end this without it breaking out into horrible nuclear conflict or much more death and destruction. Josh, real quick to you, just want to get this on. Mayor Pete or Transportation Secretary Pete just tweeted, Southwest passengers have experienced unacceptable disruptions in customer service conditions. I've made it clear to the executives that our department will hold Southwest accountable for making things right with their customers and employees. Is this just a lose-lose proposition? Well, it is really awful if you're a Southwest passenger this week with massive, massive cancellations. Now, Southwest is more vulnerable than the other airlines to bad weather because they don't have this spoken hub model where you have these big airports where most of the flights are, are originating from. So whenever you have this cold spell, the, sn- the snow across the country, uh, Southwest is going to get hit harder. I don't think the government should get involved in telling Southwest how to run their business. Well, panel, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, let's, uh, by popular demand... Let's return to the wild and wacky world of decoding the gurus talking with YouTuber CoffeeZilla. Was it? Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Chris, I was studying um, vaccine skepticism, the, the psychology of vaccine hesitancy and stuff like that. Just just graduated a PhD student a few days ago, actually. It was the ceremony. Yes. And um, we've been studying it for years. And it really was like a niche a niche topic in health psychology. Not niche anymore. You picked a good, <laughs> a good field to go into right now. Yeah. Um, you know what's weird is they, so, so what's always what always so that Matt Brown bloke who was talking about he studied vaccine hesitancy for many years. He's a professor just up the road at the University of Central Queensland. Fascinated me about so. What originally sort of got me interested in scams was like like uh, mm-hmm. watching my mom because she's always into some like health scam and quackery and she's still like to some extent. The day I was coming, like I came home, she's like, do you really think these like vaccine? Like, I don't know about that vaccine, right? <laughs> and I'm like, have you been like listening to Sean Hannity or something? She's, she's like, well, and I was like, all right, you gotta, you gotta unplug you. <laughs> um, but, but that always got me interested in it because when I started like looking at like really studying these people, what I realized is all their message came from, you know, hey, look at all the terrible things the big pharma has done. And in a way, it's like easy because 
Big Pharma has a long history to draw from. They have a lot of stakeholders. There's tons of blame that's fairly assigned to them. Okay. But then they go, okay, buy my product. Well, who are you? Well, we have no history on you. You're a nobody that came from, you know, Tennessee. You have no credentials, or maybe you even have some, I, I don't know. But you then promise the world. And because you don't have any skeletons under your closet, you buy in, right? And then what they sell you is worse than what Big Pharma was going to sell you in most cases. And the worst thing about that is like, then when they go down, they don't they don't have a long history. They don't get a stain on the record. They just disappear and another grifter pops up and takes their place mm. or they hide it or, you know, they have all these uh, mechanisms. But I wanted to go back to something Matt said that I thought was really interesting, which I like thought like you hit on one side of the coin and I think it's interesting to take the other. So you talked about, you know, oh, we used to have kings where we had like this axiomatic trust in them. And now we've democratized knowledge, which is true. Also true is that there's an increasingly, as we gain more knowledge, it becomes increasingly impossible to know enough about any field to be even just reasonably knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. Like it's just like so specialized. So we have all these sort of miraculous technologies in our life that we just sort of trust, yep. which usually isn't a problem because they just do the things they do. My phone just, I don't, you don't really don't have, don't have to trust it at all, but like you're getting on an airplane. Yeah. And we have to make decisions. So knowledge is becoming increasingly specialized. Uh, science is increasingly specialized, increasingly difficult for even intelligent, curious lay readers to understand. And yet we must still make decisions. Politicians makes must still make decisions, even though we've got imperfect, incomplete understanding of what's going on. There will never be a time where society and politicians and people who don't understand will not have to make decisions about uh, what the experts are claiming. Right? We, we never get to graduate from making decisions. Plan. Okay, that's a little different. I, I... I trust those Boeing engineers, but I don't know them. All right, I trust that they probably did their homework, but I, I don't really know. Um, but then when you go to something like vaccines, that I think that's where it like really, I think that's why it's such a, that's like where that rubber really meets the road is yeah. when you don't need the trust for so much of life hmm. because we've democratized knowledge. Yeah. At the same time, there's some things that are so incredible, like mRNA vaccines. It was incredible to me. The number of virologists in my life, I suddenly found myself with. Everyone's a virologist with an expertise in mRNA. I said, you didn't know what mRNA meant last week. How are you an expert now? And they're like, I'm telling you, you know, it, it's it's insane to me. But but people spend their lifetime understanding this technology. And it's like, yeah, it, it blows me away. But I think it does have some, it has to have something to do with that fact yep. that if you don't have that underlying trust in institutions and you're just relying on yourself, I mean, it's impossible to learn about these technologies mm. in a reasonable way. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. There's like, you know, three distinct things that are different today than a few hundred years ago. Yeah. Yes, communication technologies reduces the friction. Um, just, just so like high frequency trading, high frequency mimetic transfer happens <laughs> so quickly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the democracy, the culture, cultural stuff there is, is one thing. But like you said, the other thing that's fundamentally different is that our, our technological landscape in which we inhabit is just vastly more complex than uh, a couple of hundred years ago. And it is just not possible. You have to take, you have to learn to take things on trust. Yet 
I think the the information that's available to us on the internet actually encourages to do encourages us to do the opposite. Oh, I'm going to do my own research on climate change or something. And and one of the things that Chris and I try to encourage people is to say that's don't do that for fuck's sake. Do not do your own research. What you should be thinking about is how how do I decide who are the right sources to trust? So even myself, I, I know how to use Google Scholar, I'm a statistician, I understand about research methods. I can do a passable job at looking at a yeah. randomized control trial. But why the hell would I? What I should be doing is is read good meta-analyses, good summary articles, also published in the literature, and I can easily, without much, without, like, fuck, I was amazingly bewildered by how complex the human immune system is <laughs> we saw some introductory material i went wow this is so that's not what you want to do is it what you need to do is learn how to read critically um sources that are providing high level summaries and i guess i'm still a little bit baffled i mean we've had people on the show we're a bit stuck on vaccines we'll get off it but we've had virologists on like like professors at at oxford at, at king's college london places like that with 30 years history, like working in labs, like, you know, doing, doing research on vaccine and viruses. Um, why don't people just listen to them? Why the hell are you listening to some rando who's parachuted into this topic last week? So not the current zeitgeist. <laughs> like, I can feel that screw up in people's bones. I think, I think first, I think part of it is that in some ways the naive amateur is better able to talk in the naive amateur's language. So they mm. talk to the issues that the naive amateur sort of thinks about. Like they're like, oh yeah, like this. And, and, and they will talk to the issues that a naive anim- amateur can quickly reach to. Whereas an expert won't even think about it. It's not even like in their realm of thought because it's so far in the undergrad world or it's even, even, oh, I thought about that when I was like a grad student, but like then there's this and this reason and they just take it all for granted. So it becomes in some ways, sometimes being an expert makes it hard to teach in a strange way because you like forget what it's like to be a novice. Um, So maybe that's what it is. There just also is a mega problem on the Internet where um, and this is Chris brought this up where everyone should have an opinion about everything. We were talking a bit before the show about your galaxy brain like thing. That was so funny because it's it's this is my number one issue. I used to I used to have a podcast. I still, I still go drop in occasionally and I stopped it for a variety of reasons, but, um, I was losing time. But one of the reasons, which always annoyed me was I'd be forced into talking. We'd be talking for two hours and we kind of were just like talking with a buddy, but we talk about all these pop culture issues that I have no idea about. And I was just like giving opinions, like just like giving hot takes. And I realized, oh, it's kind of strange because I have this platform where I'm very thoughtful and like, I like actually know what I'm talking about usually. Um, and then I'm like, giving like these hot takes that I'd be giving at a bar or something, but I have an audience now and this audience, I mean, I mean, I'm sure they don't actually think that I'm any uh, really that smart, but they might take me as seriously with those things as they take me with these others. So I think that's a huge problem. I think some people exploit that like natural trust in the people you've listened to on one thing, you listen to them on others, but I think we've, I'm sure this is probably a lot of what y'all talk about. We've seen so many people who they're studying one field, they are an expert in that one field, and they be, then they actually make their career talking about something completely different. There's there's so many good good points there, and there's there's one thing that I noticed in your interview with Lex. We we have various criticisms that we might uh, which we have leveled at, at Lex, but 
in, you know, it's normal at the end of a podcast where people ask you, you know, to give some big thoughts or this kind of thing, right? And at the end of the interview, Lex asked you about what advice you would give to young people, right? And the interesting thing for me was you you started um, giving advice and, you know, uh, we're like hesitant to do so, but then we're saying, okay, you know, maybe don't give up when people say you can't do something and, and stuff like this. But what struck me was in the middle of giving that advice, you said, y- you know what, this this sounds corny and like, I don't know, I don't know, you know. And then- you just yeah. sell a book Good. like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's too easy to get carried away with your own opinions. You you need to promise a, a breathtaking new vision. You want these, this okay. it's like recent ones. Now you have to hear it. It's a little. So, so I kind of got some, you know, early experience, just, uh, just like with my brother, with friends of just the, the ludicrousness of just one piece of advice that will change your life. I think it's, it's so stupid. I mean, when you actually experience life, you realize how absurd this is. You live a little, little bit. Um, but yeah, it, it's funny how viral that is and how much it, obsesses us that solutions could be simple it could be just one thing that i have to like and it's not even that i have to apply it i should i have to hear it it's one thing it's a piece of advice your life will spin on advice it's yeah it's very interesting i think i think that's a good heuristic um chris you might have to remind me of some of the names of these books but i'm thinking of books in the vein of guns germs and steel all right so i was listening to this couple of minutes interview with coffeezilla that inspired my 90 minute live stream about six hours ago, while I was hard at work watering, but it's so good, so good from decoding the gurus. Or what are the, some of the more recent ones, which which give, which people read and they go, oh, "That's just changed my entire." Like now, I look at everything, history, humanity, yeah. completely differently. I love the books that they do all of history in one book. It's like, oh, <laughs> that is that is millennial crack. It's like you, hey, I only have to read one book to understand everything. Great. Yeah. I'll buy it. Yeah. The one you're thinking of, Matt, is The Dawn of Everything by <laughs> Wangro and Graeber. Yeah. That's a yeah. current, yeah. like... It, it, yeah. Even if not familiar, you can get a sense just from the title of that. And there is, this is where, you know, relatively respectable people go some degree down the guru trail because to to sell a book like that, you, you need to promise a, a breathtaking new vision. You want these easily consumed kind of uh, truthy feeling insights that people feel like that they're getting. And for me, it's become a real red flag. Like I, I, I love, you know, I, I, I like consuming content about history and stuff like that. But the stuff that I, I feel is real is the stuff where there's no grand, simple, beautiful narrative that ties it all up in a bow. It's just, you know, here's some crazy shit that happened. I've been listening to the, I keep saying this, the Revolutions podcast um, is a, is my guide to the history of Rome. It's a good example. It's just a good illustrative example. Because he, he's covered the French Revolution, the Heidi Revolution, the, uh, the Glorious Revolution. Like, yes, there are some broader principles, some broader themes and so on you can, you can pick up. But it's also a complex mess of shit that happened. Mm. And mm. yeah, so for me, I just think that's a good heuristic to, yeah, if, if there's some bit of advice or some, some new way of looking at the world or some technology like, like crypto that is just going to change everything, then you, your warning lights should be going off. Yeah. And there's you, the, there was another uh, point that I heard when. So the, there's been some videos, Matt, if you haven't seen, where uh, CoffeeZilla has uh, spoke to like 
Sam Bankman Freed directly or other crypto uh, scammers right? or, or people in potentially engaged in scam, whatever way you need to say it. Like the, they, and, and directly put the criticisms to them. I'm right. So one thing is that people like that, right? That I like that. I enjoy hearing somebody have to respond to uh, like direct pointed questions. And uh, so I do have a question about like how your comfort level with doing that, because that's not something that people are typically very comfortable with doing. But the, the other point I w- wanted to ask about is like quite frequently not the case. Even if you can have a private conversation in good faith, mm-hmm. it's very rare that you have a public confrontation in good faith. As soon as it becomes confrontational, it, for, for a lot of these guru types, it becomes about optics, it becomes about power, it becomes about win, winning and losing. And knowing that, if you are going to engage in that, you have to understand that they're not going to behave in good faith. And so you need to make sure that like, you bring your A game. So one thing that I always try to do is I just like try to be really prepared. I mean, I just try to have facts on my side and just like be like, whoa, wait, you're saying this. Because a lot of times, a lot of times the way... But what they then do is like apply no, like very, very... One, they don't really care about those criticisms. They just take them as the... And the back. Okay. Let's go, let's go. I'm There's... loving it. Because there, uh, there was a couple of specific things that I was I was curious about, but on that point about like the social sciences and the replication crisis, like this is this is something Matt and I have an interest in. Like I've published papers like in in favor of pre registration and methodological reform that kind of open science practices as well. But this is a thing which we've noticed the the guru figures like much the same way that the cryptocurrency traders can kind of point to you know the banks and the corporations screwing people over. And it's true. And the same thing with uh, our gurus will often say, you know, the replication crisis shows that like science is, uh, has the pro- these problems and things can't be replicated. And they're right in a large way, the same way they're right about critiques of the pharmaceutical industry. But what they then do is like apply no, like very, very, one, they don't really care about those criticisms. They just take them as delegitimizing. Like they're not actually involved in reform efforts or anything like that. And two, they then apply like an, a very credulous and much lower standard of evidence when it comes to things like the supplement industry or anti-vaccine rhetoric. So it's yeah. it's like a weird thing where it's just enough to criticize the mainstream and then that means that, you know, whatever the alternative is, the credibility goes up, but it shouldn't, right? It should be that you, you just realize, okay, so this is bad. Pharmaceutical companies are bad, but that means supplement companies. We should be very skeptical. And, you know, like people like Joe Rogan, it feels like they're, they're constantly com- talking about, you know, the pharmacy industry and all the profits and all that kind of thing, which there is legitimate things, but then they, they shill supplements. And which are overhyping, which are billion dollar industries. And hey, they won't even, no one ever talks about the supplement industry, do they? The supplement industry is absolutely massive. And there's so many people are selling these crazy pills with crazy promises and with no evidence to back it up. I mean, it's yeah. exactly what you said. It's, it's you, you take the credit, you criticize the thing, you build up your standing with that. And then all of a sudden, 
well, now you're the expert. This is something I try to be very careful about is because I feel like anyone in the position of criticism has this vulnerability or like or has this propensity, like you could do that because people start to look to you. It's like people all the time ask me like, oh, what, what crypto do you hold? Oh, what finance? As if because I can criticize that I'm now a like expert and it. it's like, no, 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 that's, that's not how this works. And if I taught you anything, you should know, like, that's not how this works. Um, but it, yeah, it, it is certainly the case that, you know, I, I've actually, actually was very interested in the replication crisis for a while. Like before CoffeeZilla, I had like a, like a sort of like a pop science YouTube channel. And, um, and I started to get bothered by the, uh, like a, the videos I was producing and then like B, like the, like science YouTube as a whole. I was like, oh, this kind of isn't that interesting that I got looked into science and I was like, oh man, there's all sorts of problems in science. Like it's not just like pop science that kind of like has tr- troubles, but it's like science has, has, has problems. But, but it is certainly not the case that like you would look at that and go, well, it's all like we just should throw it all out. Like that is the, um, that is certainly not the answer. I, I'm definitely of the reformer mindset. I mean, these things have to be solved. Uh, because, you know, what else are we going to do? Are we going to go back to the days where you just trusted a guy who is hawking you, you know, pills or whatever? For better or worse, it's sort of like the case that the big pharma industry is the best we have. Sort of like people's criticism of education. They're like, education sucks. Okay, great. Uh, what are you going to homeschool? Look at the stats on homeschool. It's like not better. Uh, yeah. You know, ironically, it's like usually the case that public education for all its very very documented faults is the best we have. And this is the case of a lot of our institutions for all their faults. They're usually the best we have. But this is one of the criticisms that we get recurrently is because we are so critical of the people in the alternative ecosystems that we're essentially, you know, we're just rubber stamping the institutional take, whatever the mainstream take is, that's the right one. And we're not, we're actually not, but you can see, I can see why people would uh, like kind of go to that as the, you know, if you're saying like that, the, if you are defending the track record of science, for example, in the pandemic, like noting, yes, there were changes in public health policy. Yes, there are things which uh, decisions which can be rightfully criticized. And there are things for which the scientific evidence isn't great and is overstated by people and so on. But like still, the track record is amazing. We had a, a vaccine produced incredibly quickly, which were vaccines produced incredibly quickly that were extremely effective, right? And that shouldn't be lost sight in the, in the kind of years of the discussion. But highlighting that gets now presented as like, oh, so, you know, you're, you're, you pray at the church of Fauci. And, and uh, it's, it, it is difficult to walk that the tightrope of like because the message is not just accept what the pharmaceutical industry says just just accept certainly not you know yeah yeah and like that's why sometimes like when when my wax <laughs> is lyrical about you know don't do research and don't think i know how that sounds to people but i also know that matt is not saying like don't develop an interest and look yeah this is the line i try to walk try to understand things critically, whether they come from the mainstream or a distant source, they come from an institution or an individual. We need to apply appropriate skepticism to many different sources of information, understand what's what's in the interest of the person promoting this, 
what is their information based on, what's the audience it's intended for. Critically, it studies. He's just saying, acknowledge your limitations. And you're, like you said, you know, you... And reasonable and responsible is making another great point. What about all those lefties who originally warned us about a rushed Trump vaccine, how they weren't going to take the rushed Trump vaccine? Right? That was the dominant perspective on the left, including by Kamala Harris, who's now the vice president of the United States. So it used to be that uh, being anti-vax was primarily a left-wing thing. We just learned about mRNA vaccines last week. What you should care about is the people who have spent entire careers on those vaccines, and not just one of them, what the majority of them think, because there's always crazy people. There are always crazy people. Or people that are just wrong. They have their pet theories and their pet theories are just like flat wrong. I mean, that happens all the time. Um, Yeah, it's, you know, I always view these things as like, uh, what is it? It's like the thesis, antithesis, synthesis. I think like culture is always moving in some type of like a title direction. And I think for a while there was like, I think these anti-establishment figures kind of rose up. And then I think you guys are a reaction to that a little bit. Like, I don't know. Um, I don't see you guys as being establishment shills at all. I think, I think you are just doing a very similar criticism. that, like, I'm not saying you guys are the same, but um, just in the way that establishment figures should be able to be criticized by people, mm. anti-establishment figures are the same way. And the problem is usually anti-establishment figures aren't used to any real criticism because nobody at the establishment is going to criticize you. So it's like you're not used to it. And so you go, oh, well, you know, you kind of get this free pass. That makes the boy. I think there's rightly. Is usually, but not always. And some of them are not even usually. Where does that leave you? Free. You get to like what you like. You get to be who you are. Maybe you're even like me and you're not a boy or a girl. Libs of TikTok has always been an anonymous account until now. Now, the woman behind the account has decided to reveal her identity exclusively to Tucker. Her name is Hyre Chikre. Here's her conversation with Tucker for a brand new episode of Tucker Carlson today. Revealing your identity right now. Why are you doing that and why haven't you before? So the reality is that I think most Twitter accounts are anonymous yes. to start with. Yes. Unless you're a public uh, official or, you know, a figure. A, a unless figure. you have the verification. <laughs> well, not anymore. Yeah, Elon changed right. that. But until Elon uh, changed that, you know, most most Twitter accounts start off anonymous, uh, as, as did mine. Um, and then I... You know, when my account started growing, I realized the hatred um, that the left has and their violent nature. And I was like, I'm going to remain anonymous. Yes. um, As my account was growing and and getting more effective. Um, And I have remained anonymous until now. Um, Well, until I was I was doxxed. My my name was shared. Um, my location was shared. My my photo was never shared that I've never done any in-person events. Um, and I'm choosing to do that now because I feel like I, over the past few months, um, I've done so much. I've helped educate people. Um, I know that I, I have helped create legislation. 
um, yes. to tackle some of these issues. And um, I, I think I've done all I can and I am ready for the next step. I get people asking me, I have mom groups asking me all the time, um, can you come help us? Um, I get in invitations, you know, to, to help to help people understand how to how to expose the left and, and yes. how to fight it. And, you know, being anonymous was sort of keeping me um, like I was restrained from from doing all those things. And I I'm ready to do that. Um, I think that I'll be a lot more effective when I'm not so anonymous anymore. Um, and I'm excited. I already have a couple of speaking engagements planned for the next few months. Good. Um, and, you know, hopefully there will be more, but I want to do all I can um, and, and help people to fight this agenda. Uh, and I'm glad that you are. I think it's an act of bravery. Um, and you've had a remarkable effect. And I just want to say, and I'll say this another 10 times because I think it's the most interesting part about you. You haven't really editorialized very much. What you've done essentially is bring to light bring to further light to publicize what they're already saying in public that's your crime yeah exactly they don't they don't want it to be shown though to certain audiences they they want their their content out there but but they don't want us to see it so it it doesn't really add up no it doesn't add up and they have no valid complaint against you right you haven't violated anyone's privacy you're posting what they put on TikTok. <laughs> they're allowed to post it but we're just not let to notice the crime is noticing what they're doing yes that's always the crime, yeah. isn't it? Um, so I think you've done an amazing thing, and unlike so many other people in journalism, and I am going to, whether you like it or not, describe you as being in journalism, because I think you are. In the I think I sense. am, too. Um, you've had an effect, a real effect, by bringing this to light. How did you wind up, do I mean, to the extent you're comfortable sharing it, like, how did you wind up doing this? You, I assume you went to Columbia Journalism School to become a journalist? <laughs> I went to Harvard and Yale. Uh, <laughs> um, thank God I didn't, though, um, because those are now, obviously, those institutions are all poisoned. Um, but so it started really during COVID. Um, I was noticing um, all of this content that was being published on TikTok, um, and I was just like, this is crazy. Wait, like, but what, at this point, you're not in a related field. Like you weren't. No. In, you're no. not doing anything related to public policy or journalism. Nothing related to politics, journalism, no. Media, Were you nothing. very political? No. Really? I was not. Because yeah. COVID was like the other day. This was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, this was two years ago. Well, my account started two years ago. Yeah. That's just, that's just incredible. You can have this effect this quickly. So you're not. A super political person. You're not watching people's speeches on C-SPAN. <laughs> no. No. You're just a normal person stuck inside. Exactly. And then and then COVID happened. And and I think that COVID, um, for me, and I, and I think for a lot of people, it really woke people up. Um, and it was sort of, it was like an awakening. Um, either you can stay, um, like, sleeping, you know, not really interested in, in what's going on in, in our government, or you can choose to get to get involved. Um, and I think COVID really drew a lot of people in just because of all of the insanity that was going on and, and that was being imposed on us. Our rights were being violated. Um, and I was like, and that was really, uh, that was really a turning point for me um, to, to, to get involved and, and to be interested. And then, um, COVID also is when TikTok started becoming big because everyone was stuck at home looking for entertainment 
and then they stumbled on TikTok, and we started seeing all those videos of, of, of nurses, you know, dancing in hospitals during, during the pandemic. Um, and I was like, you know, TikTok was was getting really big, and I was like, oh, you know, let me, let me see what what this TikTok thing is all about. And then I I stumbled upon this whole, um, this whole platform with with all of. I mean, all of the stuff, you know, everyone I'm sure has seen some of the videos. It, it's just, there's so much more. And I was like, I just, I need to disseminate this. Like this, it's this, it's just so bizarre and, and dangerous. And I was like, I just need the, as many people to see this as possible. And in, in, in large part, not exclusively, but there was a lot of adults bragging about sexualizing children. Yes, a lot. Um, specifically teachers um, there are also just parents, activists, doctors. Um, that is the most scary part about it. And that's what my account focuses on a lot now. Gosh, what, what an interesting conversation. I hope her stepping out inspires others to do this, to do the same. Step out and speak. Wow, Tulsi Gavin looks amazing. Fox says the best makeup artist, uh, Haya Rychik, the libs of TikTok lady, really needs to take voice lessons. You need more musicality in her voice. Need to walk up the staircase instead of just this flat voice and lots of ums and ahs. Get a good voice coach, help you to eliminate those ums and ahs, get some musicality, get some energy, and uh, start walking up the staircase as you're making your point. And don't walk down the staircase so often, don't stay flat, but you want to be moving up and down, but mainly up. And uh, that way, people will be hanging on your every word. That is going to do it for me. I will talk to you later. Bye-bye.